Hello again, this is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1953-1954 season. This episode focuses mainly on Don Wilson, so I thought we'd include a little clip from the interview that Chuck Hayden did with Don Wilson back in 1980. It's a great interview. Uh, Don was still busy uh, doing a lot of work, and it's just fun to hear him chat, and he still has a great voice. Uh, after this little the little clip, then we'll go into the episode, and at the end of the episode, I'll tag on more of the interview with Chuck Shaden. But if you want to hear Chuck Shaden's interviews in full, uh, you can go to his site. Um, speaking of radio, great site with just hundreds and hundreds of interviews of these great radio stars that you can look at and listen to. I'll connect to his site. Um, I'll link to it on this episode. But if you just type in Chuck Shaden, or if you just type in uh, Speaking of Radio, you'll find that site uh, on the internet, no problem at all. Don Wilson, we always think of him as Jack's announcer, of course, but he was also the announcer of lots of different shows. I mean, we talk about how, how Dennis was on two shows, and Phil was on two shows, when they got, each got their own show uh, back in 1946. But uh, there was more than that. I mean, Don was always on, you know, maybe he was on eight shows or a dozen other shows, just depending on what year and what was going on. He certainly was uh, the announcer often on command performance and mail, uh, mail call as well. Two great shows made for the GIs. Uh, we play uh, certainly a lot of episodes of Command Performance. Don't play quite as much Mail Call because I don't have them in the greatest of sound. I'll have to check for those again. But uh, anyway, uh, and Don would appear in so many uh, different radio shows that that the list just goes on and on and on of all the shows he he did work for um, Fanny Bryce and and it's just uh, the the list. I, I would say I was glancing through it, and it, I saw at least like 15 to 20 different shows that he was involved in. Lots of shows for the military, lots of shows for special shows for the Navy and so forth. Um, just a all-around um, great announcer that they could use and, and very versatile in lots and lots of different ways. He had his own uh, talk show in the 1970s that was a local... Uh, I think it was in Florida, a local Florida talk show um, that he was on for close to a decade. I mean, it was a morning show, and just kind of cool. I, I wish um, you could find episodes of that. I think there might be a little few excerpts on uh, YouTube of that, uh, if I remember right. But anyway, enjoy this great episode with, with uh, Don Wilson, and enjoy this bit of the interview and stick around after the show to hear some more of the interview and we'll see you next time. Where I came into was the integrated commercial or the comedy commercial in the middle of the show that we did with the Sportsman's Quartet for so many, many mm -hmm. years so successfully. And uh, that was the part of the commercial that, uh, that I really participated in, as well as other characters throughout the show. Where did the sportsmen come <laughs> from? Were, were they a quartet before they... Were formed for, or were they formed for this, or were they singing before? No, they were they were going quartet before Jack hired them, mm -hmm. and very successfully mm -hmm. too, and uh, made a great reputation for themselves. 
and it was all built out of a hum. <laughs> Jack would ask them a question, and in harmony, they would hum, and that was the thing that started their career on the Benny Show. And they'd start whatever song was popular, and they'd do the <coughs> normal lyric, and then That's they'd right. come back with the special lyrics. special lyrics for Lucky Strike Cigarettes. That's right. It was absolutely fantastic. It was so terrific. And, of course, you were uh, uh, always bringing in the sportsmen yeah. to, right. to the show. Don would show up with the sportsmen. <laughs> what a memory you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one time, I think, when the sportsmen were missing or were gone, or I think the on-the-air explanation was that they all, their wives all gave birth to children at the same time. And so they had Dick Hames and Bing Crosby, Dennis Day, and Andy Russell. Oh, yeah. Come in there. Uh, Gee, for whiz, doing I that forgot sort of all about that. Glad you reminded me of it. Thank you. <laughs> a, little, a little trip down the memory lane. You, have, um, you toured with Jack in the United States during World War II to many, I never many of the camps. With him. No, but you stayed stateside and went to many of the military camps. Oh, yes. We were very busy doing that, and we're thankful to be able to do it. What kind of a reception did you get from the, from the military personnel? Just. Absolutely fantastic. They're the greatest audiences you ever want to play to. Great audiences, wherever it was, whether it was a military establishment of any kind, an army base, a navy base, or a hospital, or whatever it was. Those audiences, those kids were great, great audiences. Jack loved to do shows. For well, you, the you did a lot of work for the Armed Forces Radio Service with their. Uh, uh, Command performance, I Yes, think. I started the command performance when that was instituted. Then when I went east, Ken Carpenter took over. Mm -hmm. And then when I returned, I started mail call. That's correct. Mail call was... Uh, You're bringing back memories I thought I'd forgotten. <laughs> well, these were... These were <laughs> Thank pro you. These were... You're entirely welcome. I'm pleased to get, uh, <laughs> get the memory buds working here. These programs were, were never heard stateside. They were produced for these large 16-inch transcription discs right. to be sent to all over the world. All over the world. That's exactly right. They were great shows. Every the, top star in the business was on either a mail call or command performance at one time or another or several times. And they all worked for nothing, didn't they? That's right. Yeah. That's How right. about the, the writers? Did the, the writers, writers contribute the material oh, to for tremendously. Them? Yeah. Tremendously, Jack wouldn't do a show without uh, his writers uh, helping him put put it together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, they, they did were, a lot of work. For they him. were marvelous. Well, you weren't on just with Jack Benny on the on the command performance or mail call shows. You were on as the either the MC or the host or That's the announcer right. for a galaxy of stars with, right. with those That's things. Right. Did most of those programs come from? That theater on uh, Sunset and Vine where the Lux Radio Theater was brought because there was a, t a radio studio. We there. did several there, but we did, we did several of those shows from a number of different locations, at networks and so mm -hmm. on and so forth around town, around Hollywood. The Armed Forces Radio uh, shows uh, all, often had audiences. Were they mostly military audiences? At the time we were doing the performance, mm -hmm. uh, yes, mostly. There were a certain number of civilians in the yeah. shows, of course, whether we were in one of the studios or whether we were on mm -hmm. a military base of any kind. But uh, by far, the majority of the audience was military. And the nice thing about it, Jack would come into an auditorium that we might be playing on a, uh, a naval, at a naval base or uh, any military base, and if he found the GIs down in front... He immediately arranged it in his own politic way where they got the brass mm 
out of those front rows and the GIs <laughs> down because that's where your audience was. Yeah, yeah. That tells us more about Jack Benny, too, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. The Jack Benny program, transcribed and presented by Lucky Strike. Lucky's taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky's taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. For Lucky Strike means fine tobacco, richer tasting, fine tobacco. Lucky's taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky Strike, Lucky Strike. Friends, this is Don Wilson to tell you that Lucky's win again. That's right, Lucky's win again in a national smoking survey among college students. In 1952, a survey was made in leading colleges throughout the country, which showed that smokers in those colleges preferred Lucky's to any other cigarette. In 1953, another nationwide survey was made, a representative survey of all students in regular colleges from coast to coast. Based on thousands of actual student interviews, this survey shows that Lucky's lead again, lead over all other brands, regular or king size, and by a wide margin. The number one reason, Lucky's better taste. Yes, Lucky's do taste better. First, because they're made of light, naturally mild, good-tasting tobacco. L-S-M-F-T, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And then, Lucky's are made better. Made round and firm and fully packed to draw freely, smoke evenly. Actually made to taste better. After all, smoking enjoyment is all a matter of taste. And the fact of the matter is, Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. So be happy, go Lucky. Get better taste with a carton of Lucky's. Be happy, go Lucky. Get better taste today. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Keith Hoffman. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in presenting the star of our show, it gives me great pleasure to bring you a man who... Just a minute, just a minute, Don. Hold it a minute. What? Don, today, instead of you introducing me, I'm going to introduce you. Me? Yes, Don. Ladies and gentlemen, today not only marks the anniversary of Don Wilson's 30th year in radio, but it also commemorates his 20th year with me. So, Don, take a bow. <laughs> Jack, this is so touching. Don, this day is yours. Today we will all pay homage to you. When I say we, I mean the entire cast. Your slightest wish will be our command. Whatever you... Don. Don, you're crying. Well, gee, I can't help it, Jack. See, the way those tears are... Running between your chins, it looks like you're irrigating something. <laughs> now, Don, please stop sniffling. Well, uh, I'm all right now, Jack. I just couldn't help getting emotional when I realized that you've been with me for 20 years. No, 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 Don, you've been with me. With me. To think that I came on this show when it was down, and because of... Down? The... 
And because of my personality and showmanship, I raised it to the pinnacle of success. Don, wait a minute. It wasn't easy, and there were many setbacks, but every time the show was down, I brought it up again. Now, wait a minute, Don. My show was never down. So don't make things up. Well, now let's not argue, Jack. (laughs) Really, let's don't argue because, well... And besides, I want to thank you for making this not only a memorable, but a profitable occasion. Profitable? What did Jack do for you, Don? Go ahead, Donzie. Tell Bob Crosby. Well, Bob, not only did I get $500 cash, but I also got a brand new DeSoto convertible for my wife, a trip to New York for the two of us on the Super Chief, and a whole week at the Waldorf Astoria. Jack, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, gosh. Jack gave you all of that? No, but it was his letter that got me on strike at Rich. <laughs> You're darn right. Well, Jack, I guess it won't seem like much now, but, well, since today is Don's 20th anniversary with you, the boys in the band got something for him, and here it is, Don. Oh, gee, thanks, Bob. What is it, Don? What is it? Well, now, wait, Jack, lay on rapid. Okay. Boys in the orchestra, huh? Yeah. Oh, Oh, Jack, look at this. A diamond-studded cigarette lighter. Well, I'm glad that you like it, Don. My musicians went through a lot of trouble to get it for you. Well, Bob, that's a beautiful lighter your boys got for Don, but you'd think it would be wrapped a little better. Who did it? The owner of the store. The owner of the store? I could have wrapped it better than that. Not with your hands up over your head. (laughs) (laughs) Bob. You mean the boys held up a jewelry store? Well, it was an accident, Jack. You see, when they walked into the store, Remley had his guitar under his coat. Uh The man thought it was a machine gun. He threw up his hands and said, take anything that you want. (laughs) That's still dishonest. Frankie should have opened his coat and showed the jeweler that it wasn't a gun. Oh, Frankie did better than that. He took out the guitar, started to play, and the guy said, Look, you got what you want. Stop torturing me. <laughs> well, that, that I can understand. Anyway, Bob, it was very nice of your boys to bring down that present. Well, he deserves it, Jack. After all, he took this program when it was down, and he started... It to... wasn't down! <laughs> Now, look, this show isn't five minutes old, and already I'm aggravated. That makes two of us. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello, Dennis. What's the matter with you? I got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. So what? I fell out the window. <laughs> what? It's three stories. Boy, am I lucky I wasn't hurt. Oh, you landed on your head, huh? Was that it? Was that it, Dennis? No, on the mailman's head. Oh, fine. I guess he'll have to find himself a new job. A new job? Why? Yeah, now he's too short to reach the mailboxes. <laughs> I don't know, Dennis. Everybody else just goes along. Why do these stupid things keep happening to you? Oh, I guess it's because I got such a bad start in life. You know, I was an incubator baby. An incubator baby? How much did you weigh? 11 pounds. <laughs> Dennis, if you were that big, why did they keep you in an incubator? They were afraid to let my mother get her hands on me. (laughs) Well, what did your father have to say? Nothing. He was hiding in there with me. (laughs) 
Janice, this is all very interesting, but why don't you just sing now and save the rest of your biography for This Is Your Life? I'd rather you got me on Strike It Rich. All right. I'll do it sometime. Just sing. Yes, sir. Quartet. And fellas, if you don't mind, I'm dedicating that song to Don. You see, this is a special occasion today. It's Don Wilson's 20th anniversary with me. And in honor of this, for our feature attraction tonight, we're going to do a special sketch based on the life... Oh, excuse me. I'll get it. Hello? Oh, Mr. Bennett, this is Rochester. Rochester, I'm in the middle of my show. What do you want? Well, boss, do you remember that sweet little old lady who came by here last week? Little old lady? You know, the one that sold you that 50-cent raffle ticket on a Cocker Spaniel. Oh, yes. Now I remember. Well, she's back again. Hmm. What does she want this time? A hundred thousand dollars. She fell down your steps. Well, Rocha, she's suing me for $100,000? Cheer up, boss. I got some good news for you, too. What good news? You won the dog. <laughs> Rochester, who cares about the dog? I'm being sued for $100,000. Tell me, was the woman badly hurt? She claims she sprained her ankle. Sprained her ankle? Well, Ro that's no grounds for a suit like that. 
That's what I told the four men with us. Four men? Are they lawyers? I think so. Their names are Habeas Corpus, Delecti, and Giesler. <laughs> Giesler? She just sprained her ankle. I didn't blacken her eye. <laughs> Now, look, Rochester, don't admit anything and get in touch with my insurance man. I'm covered for things like this. Okay. I'll see you later. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, say, boss. Now what? We just got a copy of Parade Magazine and your picture is on the cover. Parade Magazine? Oh, yes, yes. And my picture's in color, isn't it? Uh-huh. How do my eyes look? Green. <laughs> Green? There's a spinach ad on the other side of the page. <laughs> A spinach ad? When you hold it up to the light, you look like you're peeking through a head. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll see it when I get home. Goodbye. Goodbye. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. As I started to say... Tonight, for our feature attraction, we're going to do the story of Don Wilson's life. Oh, please, Jack. Really, this is embarrassing. Now, don't you be so modest, Don. You deserve it. Yeah, I'll say, after all, you took the show when it was down and you put it, it right It wasn't down! <laughs> and anyway, Dennis, that was 20 years ago and you were only eight at the time. So how would you know? I had a radio in my incubator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, incubator. Now, come on, let's get on with it. Ladies and gentlemen, in honor of Don Wilson's 20th year on my program, we're going to present a play based on his life. The Don Wilson story, or life can be plentiful. <laughs> Curtain. Music. Our story opens in Denver, Colorado many years ago. The stork has just delivered a precious bundle to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Donald C. Wilson, Sr. The mother happily whispers to the father, Darling, it's a boy. And the proud father says, Yes, aren't we lucky? The stork brought us a boy. And the stork said, Oh, my aching back. <laughs> slowly. <laughs> During that first week, three nurses quit because they just couldn't stand giving him his bottle. It was exasperating. The gravy would slip through, but the mashed potatoes were murdered. <laughs> but Donald was a good boy, although his parents did have trouble getting him to sleep. Now, come on, baby. Come on. It's time for Betty Bar. Now, baby, stop that. Baby, stop. <laughs> Baby, put me down. 
have him, dear. Okay. Now, Donald, close your little eyes, and Mommy will sing you to sleep. <laughs> Rock-a-bye, baby, in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. If the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Down will come Donald, Denver, and all. <laughs> The years passed quickly and Don entered college. And since his burning ambition was to become a radio announcer, he majored in elocution. How now, brown cow? How now, brown cow? And the cow and Don... Don always paid strict attention to what his professors told him. Oh, Donnie boy, you soon will leave these hallowed halls to face the world and all the future brings, future brings. Be not afraid, but go wherever duty But remember, Donnie boy, when you become an announcer and step up to that microphone, you gotta accent, accentuate the positive E, limb, manate the negative and latch on to the affirmative, no dress with Mr. In-Between. You gotta E, none, see it with clarity, use words with familiarity and add on to your popularity, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. To illustrate our last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark. What did they say? Just when everything looked so dark. I sure would like a lucky, yeah, man. It's lucky strike for me, light up. We know that you'll agree and puff on an elephantity. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Oh, no. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. How now, brown cow? graduated from college, magna cum lardi. <laughs> but the night that he was packing to leave the campus, he got an emergency call. His father had met with an accident. Don dropped everything and rushed to the hospital. You may go in and see him now, Mr. Wilson. Thank you, nurse. Oh, and uh, don't stay too long. It was quite an accident, and, well, your father's quite old now. Yes, I keep forgetting. You know, I haven't seen him for years. Dad. Dad. Howdy, Blubber. (laughs) 
just can't get over it. What's that, son? Well, I, I know it's been a long time since I've seen you, but I'd hardly recognize you. How come you look so different? Because Bob Crosby can't play the part of an old man. <laughs> Don had made up his mind to be a radio announcer. Although Don didn't know it at the time, our paths were about to cross. I was doing a show then for the Universal Corset Company. So one day my sponsor called, so I went straight to his office. Gee, my sponsor really has a nice building here. He certainly believes in advertising. Look at that big neon sign. The Universal Corset Company. And look at their slogan. Gather unto you what is yours. <laughs> well, I better go in. Uh, I, I beg your pardon, sir, but would you tell Mr. Willoughby that Jack Benny's here to see him? Oh, Mr. Willoughby's expecting you, Mr. Benny. Go right through that door. Thank you. Yes? Mr. Willoughby, please. Oh, you're Mr. Benny. Mr. Willoughby's expecting you. Go right through that door. Thank you. <laughs> yes? Hmm. I'm here to see Mr. Willoughby. Oh, you're Jack Benny? Yes. Mr. Willoughby's expecting you. Go right through that door. <laughs> Thank you. Yes? Miss, I'm Jack Benny. Mr. Willoughby is expecting me. Who's Mr. Willoughby? <laughs> Look, Miss, isn't this the Universal Corset Company? Yes. Well, Mr. Willoughby is the president. Oh, you mean Poopsie. <laughs> Poopsie? Yes. Go right through that door. Oh, for... well, all right. <laughs> Mr. Willoughby? Yes, surprise. <laughs> hmm. Mr. Willoughby, I'm Jack Benny. Yeah, I know, I know. Come right in. Thank you. Now, Mr. Willoughby, what is it you wanted to see me about? Well, I hate to bother an artist of your stature with trifles, but a strange thing has happened since you've been broadcasting for us. What's that? We've been losing money. <laughs> We've been selling corsets for 15 years, and this is the first time the company is feeling the pinch. <laughs> Mr. Willoughby, just what is your complaint about my program? I can't stand the way you read our commercials. I want you to hire an announcer. So I started auditioning announcers. I tried voices. Voices, all kinds of voices. Deep ones, high ones, soft ones, loud ones. All right, bud, you're next. Read this. The Universal Corset Company presents Jack Benny. Now, the show opens, and you say... The Universal Corset Company presents... No, 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 no! 
In the knee, in the knee, in the knee. Yeah, that's all, folks. I auditioned over 500 people, but I wasn't getting any place. It was then that I decided to try my luck at the famous Acme Elocution School. A with a U is A U A U D with a U is D U D U U D U D U A U A G with a U is G U G U E with a U is E U E U A U E U D U D U. Very good, students. Very good. Now, what did you think of that, Mr. Benny? P with a U is P U P. What? Oh, I'm sorry. You see, I'm a big comedian, and I couldn't resist the opportunity, but I really am looking for a radio announcer. Well, you've come to the right place. Now, let's see. In this class, I have little Harry Von Zell, Billy Goodwin, Jimmy Wallington, and that fat one over there is Donald Wilson. Donald Wilson. Gee, I like that name, and he looks like he might be just right for my program. Well, certainly, Mr. Benny. I'll call him over. Oh, Donald. Uh, Donald, this is Jack Benny. Uh, how do you do? How with an H and an O and a U and an O and a D is a how do you do? Now, Mr. Wilson, I'm considering you as an announcer for my program. And if you take the job, I hope everything turns out fine. Thank you. Uh, now, about your salary, Mr. Wilson. Oh, I'm so anxious to get into radio. I'll work for my three meals a day. Well, I wasn't planning to go that high. <laughs> Look, Mr. Wilson, money isn't everything, and you said yourself that you were anxious to get into radio. I know, but if I'm not going to make a halfway decent salary, why should I go on a show that's down? It's not down! How did I get in the script? It's in there because it happens to be true. It is not! It is true! It is not! Jack, Jack, you're ruining the whole thing. I don't care. My show was never down. It was true. You stay out of it. Don't pick on him, green eyes. What? That doesn't. Jack, Jack, let's get back to my story, the story of my life. I don't care about your life. I'm sick of it. I'm going home. Goodbye. Jack! G with an O, with an O, with a D, with a B, D, bye. Goodbye. <laughs> don't try and be nice to me. Ladies and gentlemen, when a fella needs a friend, he needs a helping hand. And the hands of the big brothers have helped thousands of growing boys to find the way to a useful life. Since the first big brother movement was formed in 1904, to the many thousands of men who daily volunteer to help, I say congratulations for a job well done. If you are interested in being a big brother to some needy boy, write Big Brothers of America, Philadelphia 3, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Jack will be back in just a minute. But first, a word from America's foremost authority on etiquette, Miss Amy Vanderbilt. Some of my friends tell me that in my new book on etiquette, I was a little hard on smoking. Actually, I was hard on smokers, at least some smokers. I dislike thoughtless smokers. You know, the man next to you at the dinner table who holds his cigarette so that the smoke drifts into your eyes. I like considerate smokers. For instance, I like to know that my husband is considerate enough to carry my brand of cigarette. Lucky strike. In smoking, as in etiquette, it is, after all, all a matter of taste. I want a cigarette that tastes better to me than any other. That's lucky strike. 
friends, Amy Vanderbilt is right. Smoking enjoyment is all a matter of taste. And the fact of the matter is, Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. There are two good reasons. First, they're made of fine tobacco. The whole world knows, LSMFT, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Then, Lucky's are actually made better to taste better. Made round and firm and fully packed to draw freely and smoke evenly. It all adds up to real deep-down smoking enjoyment for you. So take a tip from me and be happy. Go Lucky. Next time, ask for a carton of Lucky Strike. Lucky's tastes better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky strike. Lucky strike. Hello, Rochester. Hello, boy. Woo, 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 woo. What's that? That's the cotton spaniel you won in the raffle. Oh, isn't he cute? You better like him a lot, boss. He may wind up costing you $150,000. Wait a minute. The woman that fell down was only suing me for $100,000. What's the $50,000 for? You're being sued again. The dog just bit somebody. <laughs> oh, no. Good night, folks. Jack Benny program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsberg, George Balzer, John Tackerberry, Al Gordon, Hal Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. The Jack Benny program is brought to you by Lucky Strike, product of the American Tobacco Company, America's leading manufacturer of cigarettes. Stay tuned for Amos and Andy who follow on the CBS radio network. Our guest this afternoon on Those Were the Days is the man who was voted the top TV and radio announcer in the United States for some 15 consecutive years by, uh, by the public, by Radio Guide, which was the, lead, the leading radio publication in the country, by Fame Magazine, and by the National Press. He's a man who was, for 35 years, the announcer on the Jack Benny program on radio and television. Currently, We're a little light, folks. Good night. <laughs> That's it. That's the voice of Don Wilson. Now, Don, you never said that, really, did you? No. Wasn't, it was always no. Jack Benny who That's said right. that. That's right. That's <laughs> right. He's also a man, obviously, who blushes at a long introduction, right? Indeed. <laughs> now, you're in town because you're appearing with the big broadcast of 1944. Oh, it's a great show. It's the biggest show bargain in town. There's no question about it. It's been a very successful operation, and it's highly professional. People just love and adore the show. People come to me in the dressing room or outside the theater and say, it was so short, we'd stay another two hours, give us more. This is what they'd like to have. So it's been accepted with open hearts and arms. Well, it's a terrific show. It's at the... Mill Run Theater through right. Sunday, the 15th of, May, of June, and uh, you're the announcer, which is, what, is typecasting? Perhaps you might Perhaps call type it Perhaps typecasting. Yeah. They wanted to get an announcer for the big broadcast in 1944. <laughs> Who else but Don Wilson? But well, also, there's a great cast involved. Harry James and his great band Backstop, the whole show, mm -hmm. as you probably know. Dennis Day, a former member of the Benny Troupe, is on the show and does a great job. Dennis has developed into a great showman, and he sings a great Irish song as well as others. 
and he has a wealth of Irish stories that regale you. He doesn't have time to tell them all at any one time, but uh, he's a great little guy and does a superb job. Fran Warren, whom I think uh, you met at the hotel yes, uh, uh -huh. just as you were coming in, Fran is a great singer of songs. She was with Claude Thornhill for a number of years and made hit records under his tutelage. And uh, there's uh, uh, Warren Covington and the Pied Pipers who start, they're on early in the show and they do spot vignettes during the show. And they get the show off to a great, great start. They're so capable and do such a magnificent job. I'm sure you heard their records many times oh, and have played them. The Pied Pipers, after oh, all. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, there's uh, uh, one person we're going to miss a great deal in one sense who's been with us up until this uh, stand here is uh, Gordon McRae, who sings up storm every time he mm -hmm. comes on there. He's very, very popular. Gordon's not with us now. However, I am told that Carmen Cavallero will be with us in this engagement here. And Carmen and I were friends back in the early radio days in New York when I went back there in 1933, and we hadn't seen one another till he made a guest appearance on this show, the big broadcast of mm -hmm. 44, mm -hmm. uh, a few months ago, and he's a showstopper, no question about it. He ties things up in great style. But all in all, there are eight of us involved, all highly professional people. And the delightful thing about this is, usually in a theatrical troupe of any number, you will find petty jealousies creeping in and mm -hmm. discontent mm -hmm. rears its ugly head. There's not one bit of that in this troupe because everybody knows their, their trade so very, very well and do it so professionally that there's no reason for any jealousy. They all have their own thing that they do, and they do it superbly. So it's nice to have that kind of an associate or an association with an operation of that kind. You you didn't mention the Ink Spots or the incomparable Hildegard. Well, I hadn't there, gotten there. to there yet. <laughs> Hildegard is an amazing gal. I'm going to have to pass on the Ink Spots uh -huh. momentarily, at least, because I understand they're not with us. During this stand here at the Mill Run Theater. Oh, really? That's, I uh, see. Oh, that's, that's a, a change. A change of pace, then. Okay. Well, changes are made overnight yes, right, sometimes. Sure. So don't take that as a fact for me because <laughs> it may not be true. It's just rumor that I've heard. But getting back to Hildegard, Hildegard is one of the most amazing people I think I've ever known. She's seventy-four years old. She had a birthday here not too many weeks ago while we were on the road. And she looks the same. She still does her act in the same mode and manner that she did for so many, many years and plays piano with her gloves on. And her <laughs> trademark is so well established by that motif. And people just love her. But that's true with anybody that is in this particular cast of this show. It's the greatest show value that you can possibly guess. Chicago, I hope you're listening, because listening. it's very true. Yeah. yeah, it's a great show. The big broadcast of 44 at the Mill Run Theater through Sunday, and there's two shows on Sunday. Got it. At uh, Sunday the 15th of June. At the Mill Run Theater. We'd like to I was over there this afternoon. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the theater and around here is a delightful place. And uh, I've had a little experience in the round, not a great deal. But uh, it's an interesting uh, technique that is used in the round mm -hmm. rather than in the proscenium theater. 
and uh, it's great to have the audience in such close proximity to you. You got to hang on though, so you don't fall off. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to take the career of Don Wilson and talk a little bit about it this afternoon. Uh, before you got into radio, which goes back to about when, 1920, we don't want to say? Well, I don't mind saying it, 23. 1923. Crystal set days. Crystal set. You wouldn't know anything about that, or would you, I think. But uh, I remember the first crystal, or the first radio set that I ever made myself was made out of an oatmeal box mm-hmm. with a coil of copper wire, a galena, a cat's whisker, and an earphone, a set of earphones like we're wearing mm-hmm. right now. Yes. And uh, if you were lucky, your signal was heard six blocks down the uh, down the piece. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it all started in that very embryonic, uh, early fashion, developed there to the battery-operated sets, and then of course to the uh, Atwater Kents and all the others that came on the market as the electrical sets. It's a it's a cliche now, but were were you uh, were you bitten by the radio bug as you listened with that headset from the crystal set? In those early days? It was intriguing. I was terribly intrigued with it. I got into it, if I may be just a little personal right now. I was a serious student of serious music during my days in high school and college. Uh, My high school days and all the elementary educational days were spent in Denver. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, Colorado. But I was a serious student of serious music, and I used to try to sing a little bit. Well, they finally started, found me out after I got into this thing called radio, and uh, I had to drop out on the singing, but they permitted me to yak. So I've been talking ever since. Can't carry a <laughs> tune in a basket. <laughs> well, what was, what was uh, you, were, you were part of a, a trio yes. back in, in the, yeah. the Denver area, right? Well, may I brag a little? It was a very sure. successful operation that mm-hmm. we had. We were all in business in Denver, and uh, I'd been studying with a very well-known coach, in Denver, and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the other two boys in the trio were doing the same thing. And it was the coach in Denver who suggested, the vocal coach in Denver who suggested, because they had lost their lead voice, that they might like to talk to me. She thought perhaps I was a likely prospect. And so I joined them, and we were busier than bird dogs. Mm-hmm. We made a lot more money in radio, even in those days, in the extracurricular things that we did, and appearances of all kinds including fill-ins at the Orpheum Theater, which was uh, whenever an act couldn't appear, and why they, the trio would be engaged to play a week here and a week there. Now, did, you, did you have a name? Yes, we had a name. It was originally the Columbian Trio, and then uh, that was changed to the Civitan Trio when we all became members of the Civitan Club, a service club mm-hmm. like Rotary and Kiwanis mm-hmm. and the rest of them. And then one of the commercial accounts that we had about 1925 in Denver was for the Piggly Wiggly stores, and we became the Piggly Wiggly Trio. (laughs) Then the trio decided they would migrate to the land of milk and honey to California, so the the vice president and manager of the Piggly Wiggly Denver unit was the owner of the San Francisco unit. So he put us under contract. We went into San Francisco and the manager in the San Francisco unit sold us to Fanchon and Marco, which was the leading presentation house on the uh, Pacific Coast at that time. And we'd open up, in, uh, as we did, on Market Street at uh, the big theater in San Francisco, and then we played the surrounding communities wherever Piggly Wiggly had an outlet. 
And were you you're doing a little bit of radio at the same time? Yes, then? and we mm-hmm. were appearing on radio as the Piggly Wiggly Trio. It didn't mm-hmm. cost the station uh, KFRC, the Don Lee outlet in San Francisco at that time. It didn't cost them anything for the talent because Piggly Wiggly was underwriting it. But Piggly Wiggly always got credit for we're on as a trio, a duo, or a single. Mm-hmm. And that that was an exchange of services <laughs> basis, you see. <laughs> what what was uh, what was radio like? Take advantage of a man now who was in radio uh, back in the in the middle twenties. What what was it like? Uh, the, what were the radio stations like in this the, really the first decade of of uh, radio broadcasting? Well, by the time I'm referring to now, during the Piggly Wiggly days, some of the transmitters had become quite sophisticated, and were doing a great job. The big problem was programming. For instance, when General Electric came into Denver and built KOA, mm-hmm. which became one of the really high-powered giants in the business, you could only use music that was in public domain. So Jeannie with the light brown hair got quartered and sawed <laughs> in a million different pieces all the time by anybody that went on KOA's air. <laughs> so it was interesting. You... Uh, you uh, opened up in the morning and swept out, and you appeared on the air, and uh, you wrote shows, you produced shows, and appeared all during uh, the day in the uh, whatever particular facet of the radio activity of that station was doing at that time. This was KHJ I'm speaking, referring to now in Los Angeles. And uh, anyway... It was a lot of fun growing up or, and trying to grow up in the radio in the radio business. It, it's such a great industry to be associated with. And to have the privilege of starting in in the embryonic form, as radio was, relatively speaking, in those days, and trying to grow up with it, and to make the transition from radio about 1949 or, <coughs> excuse me, or 50 into television, and to try and grow up and become abreast of things in that monstrous media today has been a liberal education, and I so often feel that the longer I'm in it, the less I know about it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your <clears throat> very first uh, job in radio after the singing thing ended, or didn't it just end and one end and the other begin? Well, As an announcer, I know you were a sportscaster. Yes, yes. I wound up on the Rose Bowl for several years. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether mm-hmm. you're familiar with that or not. When McNamee no longer came out for the network, KFI being the uh, flagship station in Los Angeles, originated games on the Pacific Coast for the NBC mm-hmm. West Coast uh, division. And I was involved in that, and that got me into the Rose Bowl. And I did the Road Bowl for about five years. McNamee no longer came out, and I inherited the play-by-play. I'd had a little experience in football in high school and college. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, was that the beginning of your of your radio work as an announcer or sportscaster? <clears throat> uh, yes, virtually it really was. I'd done a little bit prior to that, but uh, not anything of any great importance mm-hmm. at that time. But it was a lucky niche that I fell into. And then NBC, as a result of the exposure on the Rose Bowl game for several years, NBC New York hired me as their sports announcer in the New York division, and I went east in 1933 mm-hmm. to fulfill that commitment. Benny picked me up in the spring of 34. 34, yeah. Well, I know that you, between 1929 and 33, you and Ted Husing were the 
two top sports announcers. Ted Husing was the coast. greatest sports caster in the business, mm-hmm. bar none. I knew Ted. I got to know him very, very well. And he was invaluable help to me. I was told by the boys at NBC, look out for Husing. He's high and mighty and sits in a little white castle all his own, won't talk mm-hmm. to you. Ted and I met at Soldier's Field in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I had been sent back from New York the second week I was uh, on the staff at NBC to do a Northwestern Stanford game. And I was standing back of a revetment in the stadium there at Soldier's Field trying to stay out of that cold wind off of Lake Michigan. Here I am in a West Coast uh, overcoat, which wouldn't be a lightweight top coat back in this country when the wind from Lake Michigan <laughs> hits you. And uh, a car came in, drove around the track, and a head came out the right-hand front one and said, don't you want to come in, come over and get out of the wind? So I hightailed it over and sat in the back seat, and I looked at the chap back of the wheel. And I said, aren't you Ted Husing? He said, yes, I am, and you're Don Wilson, aren't you? And we met at that particular time and under those circumstances. And Ted was instantly the exact antithesis of what he'd been described to me. He was the most generous man that you've ever known about in your life, and he was the most knowledgeable. He said, if I can help you in any way, Don, don't hesitate to call me. I'll be happy to. If we're on the same game, I'll come to your room, and I'll go over the scouting charts with you. Well, that's exactly what Ted did, and he was a great, great help. He was the greatest sportscaster in the business, in my book, in anybody's league. Sounds like a little bit of admiration right there. Oh, I'll <laughs> never forget it. When you uh, were in New York doing sports, Jack Benny had been uh, starting on radio. He, his first bit with uh, radio was with uh, Ed Sullivan, and a few months after that he, he got his own show for Canada Dry and then That's was on right. the air for... Uh, for Ch- uh, uh, Canada Dry Beverages he was on for. Yeah. That was his first year as the Jack Benny show. Right. Then the second year, he was signed by Chevrolet, Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. and the contract was terminated at the end of 26 weeks. Now, so the story goes, and I think it's an awfully good story, but I won't <laughs> vouch for its veracity, that the uh, the advertising manager of the Chevrolet division of General Motors concluded that their product was so high class that they should be represented on the air by a symphony and by not by a comedian. So Jack's uh, contract was terminated at the end of 26 weeks. And it was at that point in the spring of 1934 that he held an audition for an announcer to uh, carry on with him for the rest of that uh, season of 13 weeks. And I just got awfully lucky and got the job. I was thrown into a general audition with all the other stop boys Mm -hmm. and the freelance men around town. And the only answer I can give, how did it happen? Nothing really dramatic about it. Nothing world-shattering took place, except I think perhaps I laughed in the right places when I read lines, and that got me the job. <laughs> <laughs> well, had you, uh, when you had the opportunity to, to go in for this audition, in your mind, now you're pretty successful as a sportscaster at that time, did you think that this was a, uh, would be a, 
a positive thing for you I, to become an announcer? For I know Jack Benny was pretty big in radio at that time yet, but still. I really didn't an know announcer. enough about what I was trying to do or what was going on to be able to make any kind of a uh-huh. deduction. But uh, it didn't take me long to uh, realize that it was the happiest move that I would ever have the opportunity of taking advantage of, and I snapped at it. <laughs> well, we're glad you did too, because for so many years we had some tremendous good entertainment. You, you uh, were preceded on the Benny Show by three other announcers, however. And, Maybe you um, remember who I they did were. Some, well, I did some digging to find out that George Hicks George was Hicks, Jack's first announcer, very good friend of mine, and Paul Douglas, who oh, later yes, became an that's actor. Right, Paul was, that's and a man right. with I'd a Paul. with an exotic name by the name of uh, Alois Avrila. Avrila, yeah. Lois Havrilla was a Czech, one of the top people at NBC, and he was on, but he couldn't make the transition when uh, that 26 weeks uh, changeover took place that I referred to, mm-hmm. because Havrilla was doing the Firestone Hour, and General Tires brought uh-huh. Jack Benny for 13 weeks to fill out that 34 season. And uh, so that's the reason that he was, Jack was looking for another announcer. So your first commercial for Jack was General Tires? That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. And then, Bill O'Neill, president of General Tires, was the man responsible mm-hmm. for hiring Jack. When you started to work for Jack, were you, were you hired by the network or by the agency? Or I was by on, Jack, I should I was on staff at NBC, as mm-hmm. everybody on the announcing yeah. staff had to be. I was under their management. But Jack was the man that did the hiring. I he see. negotiated the whole deal. Did he did he set your salary then, at that time? Well, I guess you would say he did. Uh, Jack had such a reputation of being a skinflint, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, all I can say is that the Jack Benny that I knew had all the great attributes of a great human being, such as generosity, tolerance, interest. And he was back of you 100%. So I wasn't the, uh, I, as time went on, I wasn't the recipient of his puneriousness if he was so <laughs> reputed to be on the air. Yet over the course of time on radio and even into television, uh, a lot of the great, of course, this is Jack's character coming out in, in, right. in, the, in the shows, but in so many instances... There was so many stories around uh, Don Wilson's salary, which was next to nothing, and how he locked you in a room until it was time for you to sign, you know, until you would sign the new contract at the old salary. That's right. And all of that sort of thing. You have a great memory. You've done a lot of homework, haven't you? Well, I enjoy listening to all those old shows and enjoy remembering them, too. Well, they were great, great days. They were fantastic. And the big broadcast of 1944 that we're doing here at the Mill Run is uh, reminiscent of that great era in the golden era of radio, in which uh, I was fortunate enough to be a part of mm-hmm. and be a part of the Benny operation in the doing. In the in the big broadcast, <clears throat> you come out at the top of the show to warm up the audience. Is that correct? That's right. Now, you had the same role for the Benny show over That's the right. years. Then I sort of MC the show. I mm-hmm. introduce all the acts as they come on mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Harry James, of course, is the top star. He does a certain amount of introducing at the end of the show. But uh, I might mention in passing, and I'm bouncing around sort of hither, thither, and yon. Harry and I did the Chesterfield show together in 1942. 
I did the Chesterfield show with Glenn Miller. Mm-hmm. Then when Miller went into the service, Harry took over, and I continued on. So Harry and I worked for Chesterfield at that time, and we haven't worked together in all these many years <laughs> since until the institution of the big broadcast of 1944. <laughs> Excuse me. You worked the uh, you worked for Chesterfields. Then while you were doing the Jello stuff for for Jack, yes. And then we forgot about Chesterfields when you moved over to Lucky Strike. Well, uh, <laughs> we were out for General Foods and Jello for ten years, uh-huh. and Lucky Strike came after then. Lucky Strike sponsored Jack and the Benny Show for fifteen years. They were the greatest longevity of any client on the show. Uh, General Foods being ten years for Jello. Mm-hmm. And uh, 15 years for Lucky Strike. It, it's amazing. You think back, Jack <clears throat> Benny had as his sponsor Jell-O for, for 10 years and uh, Lucky Strike for 15 years. And, and today, now here in the 1980s, you, you're lucky if you get a sponsor to pick up uh, a 30-second commercial during a television special. That's right. Uh, no longevity at all. My, how times have changed. Yeah, really have. But you see, the sponsors took pride in the programming in those days. Now, there was always the hue and cry. I'll editorialize for a second here. Good. Always the hue and cry that once they got the network programming out of the hands of the sponsors, the audiences would have better programming. And eventually, through the 50s and the 60s, the programming moved away from the sponsors who, who really produced the shows through their advertising agency, or most of them. You've got it. To the point where now the networks are producing the shows or paying for the shows to be produced, and the sponsors really don't have any interest in it other than the sheer numbers they're getting out, That's out right. there. Whereas in the old days, and you were there with the Jell-O and with the Lucky Strike things, I believe that the audience, in their response to the sponsor fortified the sponsor, and kept his interest in presenting that program. I think your analysis is very well taken. I don't think anybody can dispute it. Did you have any experiences with the audience uh, responding to a sponsor, either positively or negatively, about anything that was on on the show? We never had any difficulty in all the shows that uh, I did, particularly with the Benny operation. There was never that conflict between uh, the show and the client. Uh, the sponsor, I think, was very well aware of the fact of Benny's integrity mm-hmm. and his great showmanship and his uh, uh, devout attention that he gave to taste that he did on the show. And that was one thing that got Jack a great children's audience mm-hmm. because he never tolerated anything on the air that was the least bit off-color in those days, and it was a show that the whole family could listen to with no compunctions whatsoever. No e- fear. Everybody enjoyed Jack Benny because Jack Benny was so different. Uh, he was the star of the show, but he was really, uh, he didn't have all that many gag lines. No, Jack has often said, I'm the biggest straight man I'm in the business. <laughs> and there was many a time when... Uh, Well, Jack had a basic philosophy, if I may divert here for a moment, as I analyze it, and that is, Jack, it it was obvious that this was his philosophy. The bigger he could make the supporting people that worked with him on the show, the bigger it made the Jack Benny show, and the bigger it made Jack Benny. Now, this is a leaf that I don't think any other comedian ever took 
out of Jack's book, and it was so sound and successful that I'm surprised somebody else didn't pick it up too. But that was Jack. That was the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the great showmanship that was reflected in Jack's operation in all the years he was on the air. When you when you uh, you read about uh, someone write, who has written something about the Jack Benny show, they always say he surrounded himself with with all the Stooges, and he would say Mary and Dennis and Phil and Don and and uh, the Don't other ones. Don't forget Rochester. Rochester, of course, of course. <laughs> and yet, if you think about it, really, Jack was the Stooge, and all of the others were the were the were the the. Uh, they, they couldn't be stooges. You couldn't call him a stooge because a stooge is the guy who, in my mind, always gets the, the bad end of the joke or the bad end of the story. That's right. And that was always Jack. But you brought up a reflection there that uh, sparks a memory in my brain right now. There was one show, radio show, many, many years ago that I can recall very vividly that Jack did not speak one word on the show or on a microphone until the last five minutes of the show. This was the great generosity of this great man. Other comedians, if in rehearsal, a supporting player got the laugh line, the star had that line (laughs) on the air, not the supporting player. Jack was the reverse. And all but five minutes, Jack was not on the air. We talked about him. We kidded him. He sat over with that kind of sheepish expression on his face on a chair to one side. And all the gags bounced off of him, mm-hmm. but he never uttered one word, which was an amazing trait, really. He really, he really knew. He had, a, had to have an awful lot of confidence in himself and his, uh, well, his whole program. He, did. Did. he was uh, uh, a contributing writer, more or less, to the to Jack the was show. a great editor. Mm-hmm. Jack was a creative mind. He, uh, he created a lot of the basic ideas, just the thought, and turned it over to the writers for development. And, of course, Jack always engaged the greatest writers in the business, in my opinion. And, uh, well, the show just took off from that basic, uh, rather simple formula. Jack was a great blue pencil man. He could tell you from here to doomsday whether or not it was a gag that belonged on the show, Mm -hmm. that fit the character it was given to, or didn't fit the character. He, He knew what it was all about. We're talking to Don Wilson, uh, announcer for 35 years with Jack Benny on radio and television, appearing in the big broadcast of 1944 at the Mill Run Theater in Niles through Sunday, the 15th of June, along with Harry James and the orchestra, Dennis Day, Fran Warren, Warren Covington and the Pied Pipers, Carmen Cavallaro, and the incomparable Hildegard. It's the greatest show value in town. Don't miss it. Absolutely. You love yourself for having seen the show. I said the other day when someone called and asked about the prices uh, uh, for the uh, for the shows, and I said that this dollar for dollar, you you can't get a better uh, your money's worth better any place else. To see all of that talent uh, is worth twice as much money. It's not a cheap show to produce. Believe me, it's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great value, great value, and sheer entertainment. No messages. Well, what the, who was it, Eddie Cantor, who said, if you want a message, call Western Union. That's right. <laughs> did you ever work, ever work with Eddie Cantor? Yes, I did, for six weeks. At a time when Harry Von Zell, who's a very close friend of mine over the years, were contemporaries, Harry could not make an Eastern trip with Cantor, and uh, so Eddie asked me if I'd fill in for those six weeks. Now, mm-hmm. the Benny Show had terminated for the season, and I was at liberty to do that, so I worked straight for Eddie for those six weeks. You uh, 
were mostly working for Jack Benny, but you were not exclusive to Jack at at, That's right. at, at any time? Uh, virtually so. I did not have a contract that per se uh, tied me down exclusively, but mm-hmm. in its application, it perhaps was an exclusive contract. And that was due to, in the later years to the fact that Jack's uh, recording sessions or his on-camera TV appearances were not too predictable because he had other things going, particularly mm-hmm. his concerts mm-hmm. with his mm-hmm. violin. And uh, so the uh, the schedule for the radio shows and the schedule for the TV shows had to be governed ultimately by uh, his, uh, his availability. So the rest mm-hmm. of us made our time available to him. So that excluded... Uh, me particularly, as I recall, from doing a lot of other shows that were offered because I couldn't guarantee mm-hmm. delivery of myself. In the 1950s, Jack turned to, to tape for most of his shows, but prior to that, basically, those were all done live. In the early days, they were, and then finally for the repeat show, they went to the transcriptions, a 33 mm-hmm. and a third, you mm-hmm. know. We used to do two shows a Sunday, mm-hmm. one for the East Coast and one for the West, virtually. And... Uh, that was a bit of much. And finally, when uh, transcriptions came along, and we were able to do the show once a day, and they, then the repeat show mm-hmm. being played off those transcriptions, that was a great boon, really. Great boon. Then, of course, tapes came along yeah. better. Mm-hmm. When you did the, the show twice, if uh, Jack had the 7 o'clock time spot, uh, you were probably doing it at 4 o'clock. That's it's right. always in the in the West Coast in Hollywood. Right. You did it at four for the Midwest and the East, and then again at seven for seven was the New York time. Right. Well, wasn't That's it right. was it heard at seven in in in, in the West Coast no. as well? No, not as a general rule. The repeat show was the repeat. Sometime. Yeah, but yeah. when when the West Coast heard the Jack Benny show, they heard it at seven o'clock. Uh, yes. Pacific Coast time. Pacific time, right. Yeah. But what they were hearing initially was a repeat broadcast, and later was the transcription then. Yes, you can say that. Yeah. yeah. When you had those two live shows, you've obviously had three hours' worth of time between the shows, or two and a half hours. Uh, but it was well-consumed time, mm-hmm. because there was rewrites that went on during that time, things that uh, Jack and the writers and the producers thought might pay off, didn't frequently, did not pay off, so those are little changes mm-hmm. that were made. So that when they did the repeat show, it wasn't identical to the show mm-hmm. that we had done earlier. So maybe the West Coast, when they got the second shot at it, they had a, maybe they got a better show than we did here in uh, Chicago. Area. Well, uh, that's that's <laughs> altogether possible. I think you can't argue with that. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there ever was a bad Jack Benny show. No, I think your point is well taken. Babe Ruth never hit a home run every time he got to bat either. And I don't think anybody on radio ever hit 100%. But Jack's batting average was extremely high. Believe me, it was high. And I don't say that because I had the privilege of being associated with that great man. It was a fact and well-recognized and known in the industry. Now, you've uh, recently, I don't know how recent it is, but you're a resident of Palm Springs. That's right. And how, how recent is it? When, when did you take up residency oh, in Palm 12, Springs? Oh, about 12, 13 years ago. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So that's... Uh, we got out of the mm-hmm. Los Angeles uh, rat race, as we call uh-huh. it, uh-huh. and uh, decided we'd make our home in Palm Springs. And uh, so that's what we've been doing. Palm Springs was the real or fictional setting for uh, a number of Jack Benny shows each year. That's right. In the old radio days, we used to go down two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. 
and we'd do a show from Palm Springs that related to Palm Springs or the trip to Palm Springs. But it all had something to do with Palm Springs. The most memorable ones for Jack Benny radio fans is a show he would do first or second week in December from Palm Springs, and it was the Christmas shopping show. Oh, yeah. And Jack would go into the department store, <laughs> and he'd be trying to buy gifts for all the members of the cast, but the whole thing revolved around a gift for Don Wilson. Shoelaces. Shoelaces. <laughs> the generous man. <laughs> <laughs> or golf tees. It could be. Golf tees or uh, cufflinks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Crazy Whatever things it that was. happened. And he'd always go back and exchange because he didn't know whether you'd like uh, cufflinks right. with D on it or W or DW or Don. <laughs> Is your middle name Harlow? Yes. Donald Harlow, C-D-H-W. <laughs> we had a chap on the uh, the show, purportedly our son. Mrs. Wilson and I have no children. Mm -hmm. But uh, they hired this chap out of the Pasadena Community Playhouse named Dale White. And he played our son on the show, as Mrs. Wilson played herself, my wife, on the show for 15 years. She actually did play herself. Oh, yes, yeah, she show. did. Lois? Lois, uh -huh. that's right. She's the talent in our household, believe me. Well, Came she, from the theater originally. She did a lot of radio in the uh, in the forties, didn't she? Out yes. of the West Coast. She had been very successful in the theater and looked upon this thing called radio rather down the nose, though, mm -hmm. as theater people are prone to do. She said it will never last. It's a single bar medium. The theater, the live theater, is the lasting media. But uh, when the theater stock business kind of went down hill, and there wasn't that activity in stock around the country, where she had done leads and character parts, even as a young girl. And uh, so she got involved through the persuasion of friends she'd been in the theater with, and she got involved in radio and whirled like a dervish ever since. Do you, uh, can you recall some of the things she did that, that we might recall ourselves? She was uh, more or less a regular on the Lux Radio Theater, which was the... Uh, the hallmark mm. of great dramatic shows. She played the uh, principal supporting part to the leads that came in from the picture industry for several years. Mm -hmm. And she probably was on three weeks out of every four in a month. She was very popular there. She created the mother role for more kids that grew up in our industry. Corliss Archer, Date with Judy, well, you name mm -hmm. it. And those uh, had the voice quality that even as a younger woman that uh, permitted her to be able to do mother parts very, mm -hmm. very effectively. And, uh, oh, I can't name. She has, uh, she has a list of credits as long as your right arm. The name she used on radio Lois was? Corbett, C -O -R -B -E -T. Lois Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T. Lois Corbett. That's her maiden name. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been married? We married in 1950. How about that? 1950. How so lucky you're celebrating your 30th anniversary yes. this year. Uh -huh. yes. Yes, we were married in June, 1950. Say, hey, wait a minute. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's an anniversary coming up, and I'm not home. Maybe I better resign and go back home right now, should I? <laughs> you got to go to that Palm Springs department store and buy a gift for her. <laughs> you, over the years, as the announcer and the foil for Jack, uh, on his shows, more or less played the... Uh, probably the smartest member of the cast, 
Dennis uh, was always a little uh, a little. He flaky. was a naive kid. Yeah, Dennis and, and was. Phil was kind of brash and uh, after the gals and even uh, the, a little tippling a that's, little bit. That's there. putting it very politely. <laughs> <laughs> but you always had the brains. You were the one who uh, who had uh, all of the answers. And of course, when you when I put, blew, I blew it. Well, when you put Jack into the corner, then he was ready to fire you again, right? <laughs> I recall one instant where I was. Be- waxing very erudite on the air and introducing Jack and talking about this particular situation, which I don't recall at the moment. And when I got through, Jack said, My goodness, Don, I didn't know you knew all that. Where did you learn it? And I said, I read it in Dreer Poussin's column. (laughs) Well, that created a whole new ball of wax. (laughs) The crazy boo-boos that you make. And that was not part of the script. No, no, that just came out inadvertently. (laughs) Reminds me of one time Fanny Bryce had been off the air for two years. She and Frank Morgan were on together for Maxwell House. Mm -hmm. Now Fanny is coming back with her own show, The Baby Snook Show. Mm -hmm. I had a cold, declamatory billboard opening in which I said, The Baby Shook Snow, (laughs) and fell apart immediately. And the control room fell apart. We all fell apart and then got a big laugh out of it and started all over again. (laughs) Well, I understand that at one point you said, when you were talking for Lucky Strike Cigarettes, with uh, their their famous jingle back in the... uh, in the oh, good old here days. it comes. I knew you'd bring yeah, that up yeah. sooner or later. You said, be lucky, go happy. That's exactly <laughs> what I said. <laughs> and that was at the close of a show where we'd been doing a satire on uh, 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 with Barbara Stanley. Sorry, wrong number? No, no. It was, uh, what was the name of that show? Very well-known show. And we were doing the uh, we were doing it with Barbara Stanley, and I was signing the show off from off stage, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and uh, the closing scene, Jack went over and pulled the bell cord to summon the butler. Well, that caused a blackout because Jack did that pulling of the cord with uh, so much alacrity that the whole ceiling fell down. <laughs> so that was the blackout of the curtain, and the dust that was blown all around and backstage, as you know, they're a little bit drafty uh-huh. anyway. And a piece of plaster or whatever it was hit me in, in the eye under my glasses, and I reached for it like this and made the boo-boo that you quoted. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that put me in the hospital for weeks. No and Lois got the job as the announcer on the show. <laughs> well, they made, then they made something out of that, too, then. Every they time somebody on the, ca- on the show mm-hmm. would make a boo-boo, Jack was always quick to capitalize on it. Were you were you among the? Uh, I know Jack was uh, an innovator in integrating the commercials into the. Uh, yes, the Jack comedy was the integrator of, of that yeah. idea. Yeah, you you were part of that with the Jello thing. As yes, far back for many as years, mm-hmm. I didn't do the so-called hard sell announcing on the Benny Show, although that was the job I was hired to do mm-hmm. originally. But Jack started having the writers write me into the script. So for a number of years. While I was always referred to as Jack Benny's announcer, even by Jack himself, the serious commercials at the opening and the close of the show were done by other people. Uh I didn't have anything to do with them. (laughs) But where I came into was the integrated commercial or the comedy commercial in the middle of the show that we did with the Sportsman's Quartet for so many, many Mm -hmm. years, so successfully. And uh, that was the part of the commercial that, uh, that I really participated in, as well as other characters throughout the show. Where did the sportsmen come from? <clears throat> were were they a quartet before they 
were formed for, or were they formed for this, or were they singing before? No, they were they were going quartet before Jack hired them, mm-hmm. and very successfully mm-hmm. too, and uh, made a great reputation for themselves. And it was all built out of a hum. <laughs> Jack would ask them a question, and in harmony, they would hum. And that was the thing that started their career on the Benny Show. And they'd start whatever song was popular, and they'd do the <coughs> normal lyric, and then That's they'd right. come back with the special lyrics. special lyrics for Lucky Strike Cigarettes. That's right. It was absolutely fantastic. It was so terrific. And, of course, you were uh, uh, always bringing in the sportsmen. Yeah, to, right. to the show. Don would show up with the sportsmen. <laughs> what a memory you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one time, I think, when the sportsmen were missing or were gone, or I think the on-the-air explanation was that they all, their wives all gave birth to children at the same time, and so they had Dick Hames and Bing Crosby, Dennis Day, and Andy Russell oh, yeah. come in there uh, Gee, for doing I that forgot sort of all thing. about that. Glad you reminded me of it. Thank you. <laughs> a, little, a little trip down the memory lane. You, have, um, you toured with Jack in the United States during World War II to many, I many of the camps. No, but you stayed stateside and went to many of the military camps. Oh, yes. We were very busy doing that, and we're thankful to be able to do it. What kind of a reception did you get from the, from the military personnel? Just absolutely fantastic. They're the greatest audiences you ever want to play to. Great audiences, wherever it was, whether it was a military establishment of any kind, an army base, a navy base, or a hospital, or whatever it was. Those audiences, those kids were great, great audiences. Jack loved to do shows for well, you, the you did a lot of work for the Armed Forces Radio Service with their uh, uh, command performance, I Yes, think. I started the command performance when that was instituted. Then when I went east, Ken Carpenter took over. Mm-hmm. And then when I returned, I started mail call. That's correct. Mail call was. Uh, you're bringing back memories I thought I'd forgotten. <laughs> well, these were these were <laughs> pro- these were you're entirely welcome. I'm pleased to get the <laughs> get the memory buds working here. These programs were were never heard stateside. They were produced for these large 16 inch transcription discs right. to be sent to all over the world. All over the world. That's exactly right. They were great shows. Every the, top star in the business was on either a mail call or command performance at one time or another or several times. And they all worked for nothing, didn't they? That's right. Yeah. That's How right. about the, the writers? Did the, the writers, writers contribute the material oh, to? Oh, tremendously. Yeah. Tremendously. Jack wouldn't do a show without uh, his writers uh, helping him put, put it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, they did were, a lot of work for They him. were marvelous. Well, you weren't on just with Jack Benny on the, on the command performance or mail call shows. You were on as the... Either the MC or the host or the That's announcer right. for a galaxy of stars That's with, right. with those That's things. Right. Did most of those programs come from that theater on uh, Sunset and Vine where the Lux Radio Theater was brought? Because there was a, t- a radio studio. We there. did several there, but we did we did several of those shows from a number of different locations at networks and so mm-hmm. on and so forth around town, around Hollywood. The Armed Forces Radio uh, shows. Uh, often had audiences. Were they mostly military audiences? At the time we were doing the performance, mm-hmm. uh, yes, mostly. There were a certain number of civilians in the yeah. shows, of course, whether we were in one of the studios or whether we were on mm-hmm. a military base of any kind. But uh, by far, the majority of the audience was military. And the nice thing about it, Jack would come into an auditorium that we might be playing on a... Uh, 
a naval, at a naval base or uh, any military base, and if he found the GIs down in front, he immediately arranged it in his own politic way where they got the brass out of those front rows and the GIs <laughs> down because that's where your audience was. Yeah, yeah. That tells us more about Jack Benny, too, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. We're talking with Don Wilson, and I want to know a little bit more about you. Now, we always, everyone associates you with the Jack Benny Show, but you did so many other programs, too. You were, you were involved in the, in, the, in, the, uh, <clears throat> in the 1930s in a program for Packard Automobiles, weren't you? The Packard Show. Didn't you announce the no, Packard well, program? No, I with started the, that in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And there again, Carpenter, whom I put in the radio business, uh, succeeded me. And uh, he did more of the Packard shows than I did. I uh, I started them on the coast and then went east and had to drop off of mm-hmm. those, and Carpenter picked up at that time. How did, uh, how did you start uh, Ken Carpenter in the radio business? Well, Carpenter had never seen the inside of a radio studio before. He was the son of a minister out of uh, oh, a town in Illinois that's very famous as a beer town. That's well, Chicago, it, it does, it does, <laughs> Morton Grove, <laughs> where they where they, they brew a lot of beer. Uh, it doesn't come to me at the moment, but it's uh, rather incidental. Anyway, one of the head of a small agency in Los Angeles came to me one day and he said, "Don, our we have a new minister at our church in Glendale. He has a son who wants to get in the radio business. Will you audition him?" And I said, his name was Wilson, too, incidentally, no relative. Mm-hmm. First name, Alan. I said, well, Alan, I'll be glad to talk to the young man, but I have no place for anyone. So he sent Ken Carpenter in, and I took a liking to him right from the very beginning. We had a long talk. I gave him an audition. He was a college man. He was uh, a highly dependable uh, individual. You could tell that from talking with him. And I arranged it so I could hire him and put him on the relief shift at the noon hour and the dinner hour to pick up buttons because we were tied to the network at mm-hmm. that time. And that's how Ken started. To pick up buttons. Now, <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, uh, picking up the buttons means that when you got a station break, the announcers had to push their own button. You had a man in the studio control room, mm-hmm. but you had to pick up your own button in order to activate your voice. And you'd give your station call at that time, which was KFI in those days. Mm-hmm. And that's about all you had to do. In other words, when the network would take a break for station identification or the music that's would right. be playing, you'd pick up the button. So you got it. Press the, you'd turn on the switch and say the call letters of the local that's station, right. and then that's they'd pick right. it up again. That's right. And for that, they paid you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Ken Carpenter was hired for. <clears throat> You, you I, would, I was, if I may brag a little bit, I was chief of staff at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how it all happened. You really have enjoyed your radio work, haven't you? Very, very much. Did you enjoy television as much as radio? I think so. It's a different medium. It's an entirely different ball game, And it's gotten also that a lot of the charm that we used to enjoy in the old, old days has been dissipated. It's a numbers racket these days. Mm-hmm. Yes. You used to go into a radio studio or in the early days of television and you knew everybody. But I mean everybody. And you knew them intimately. And there was a great rapport. And uh, But that's gotten so it doesn't exist any longer. It's, a, it's like a factory job these mm-hmm. days, you mm-hmm. know. Maybe you'd see somebody 
You've never seen them before or won't ever see them again, but there they are for that specific job. Radio really was uh, kind of a family uh, uh, association with the people behind the microphones as well as the people in front of the receivers. One of the great things about radio, and it will never be acquired by television because it's impossible, but in the radio days, through the listener's eye, his mind's eye, he lived the show with you. He recreated. As the words came over the loudspeaker, he knew exactly what that individual looked like, although he'd never seen a picture mm-hmm, of anybody. Mm-hmm. But in his own mind's eye, he did. And he knew what the situation was that we were talking about. Again, the imagination played the part. And that's one thing that young people, kids today, do not have that advantage that those of us that knew radio in the old days because their imagination is no longer stimulated as it was during the days of radio. Well, you helped us stimulate our imaginations uh, with what you contributed to radio. And well, for thank you. millions of people out there, I have to say thank you, Don Wilson. That's, what, that's, <laughs> that's really something else. Uh, I have to say, too, I spent many, almost every Sunday at 6 o'clock here in Chicago sprawled on the floor in front of that Zenith console radio listening to you and Dennis and Phil and Rochester and Mary and Jack and the whole crew go through that the fastest 30 minutes on radio. It was. went by like wind, really. went by so rapidly. And those programs created some 45 years ago, 40, 30 years ago, are just as funny just as good today Just as, as they good ever today were. as the day yeah. they were originally written. Absolutely. No question about it. That type of comedy we no longer have. And bless the listeners' hearts for making it possible for us to succeed in it. Because without the devotion of the radio listeners and subsequently the TV viewers, without that devotion that the public afforded us, we wouldn't be here today. We are indebted to the public for all the invaluable things that they did for us. Well, the public is indebted to you and the radio (laughs) people, too. But they are expressing their gratitude this week at the Mill Run Theater in Niles because they're seeing radio come to life on that revolving stage out there uh, when the big broadcast of 1944 opens each night. Thank you for mentioning. You're there with uh, Dennis Day. And now you get you and Dennis do a little uh, a little bit there about we the, have a the little badinage that's uh, reflective of uh, the way Dennis used to work mm-hmm. on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I at one point uh, they've given me a very presumptuous uh, job in that occasion, and that's uh, I'm reading the straight lines that only Benny could do. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So uh, I hope that anybody <laughs> here won't think I'm trying to imitate because I'm not an imitator. <laughs> Well, there is no one who could imitate Don Wilson either. Well, there's nobody that can imitate Jack Benny. Believe That's me, and sure. I'm the first one to know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, in, you're, you're in, in good health. You look very fine and fit. And uh, when we first met, I saw you uh, lighting up a cigarette, and I said, I noticed it was not a Lucky Strike cigarette, and I said, Don Wilson lighting up a cigarette that's not a Lucky Strike? And you, you told me why. When they quit sending them, I changed brands. <laughs> <laughs> when the freebies ended, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's you... been a joy talking with you. Thank you very much for having me as your guest. We've gone back over things that are very vague in my memory in some respects, but are pleasant to relate 
and chat with you about. And I must say you have almost an inexhaustible well of information about particularly the Benny Show. And thank you for revising my, uh, or not revising, but revitalizing my memory. It's my pleasure. Of those days. Thank, thank you, you very much, Don Wilson. Thank you. to bring to you the co-presidents of the what is the afternoon fine arts league Daisy and Mindy in Cove Sporter's great number Friendship Maestro If you're ever in a jam here I am Howdy everyone, Stacy and Mindy here to talk about Phil Harris and Alice Faye. This one is called An English Dinner for a Car, or something along that line. So I didn't look at the title quite for exact. For a new car. <laughs> for a new car, yes. You we omitted one word. That's I, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm actually surprised my memory was that great. <laughs> Okay, I like this episode. I thought it was pretty fun because it um, it it's the process that many of us have gone through the buying of a new car and um, and but it goes on a side spin that I've never gone into when I've had to buy a new car. But at the same time, <laughs> I haven't been wanting to buy a top-of-the-line car either. <laughs> and it's... Uh, the episode's interesting because also um, bring, brings in what... Well, what I think are kind of some English stereotypes because when they go in and to the dealer to even look at the car, they'd have to qualify to even look at it, <laughs> let alone buy right. it. <laughs> that just made me laugh. And... Um, yeah, there are some cars you have to you have to do the credit check before they even let you really <laughs> you know, touch. Yeah. Or yeah, like okay, let's make sure you can time. even afford this before we let you even touch it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, that that comes up a little bit, and uh, it, it's just fun, and it it made me wonder what like cars cost in the 1950s so i found a site that talked about it this is the peoplehistory.com and um let's see it has a list of some examples of what prices were in the 1950s for a new car for example an aston martin db2 cost five thousand nine hundred and fifty six dollars and that was one of the more expensive ones. Some of the other ones are like in the $1,400 range. 
but mm-hmm. the more expensive ones could be up to 5000 And, uh, I mean, that's not that much today, but back then, that was a lot. <laughs> when that Aster one that you're talking about, uh, if you still had that car, <laughs> is... <laughs> worth quite a bit more than 5000 right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, especially if it's in really good condition. I Oh uh, yeah. You'd you'd probably be that set would have for been life. An investment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, go check out your old garages. Maybe there there's an old car <laughs> hiding in there that grandpa bought and forgot about. <laughs> um, but it was kind of fun to look through the different cars and see what they cost back then. And then I mm-hmm. was um Phil wants to buy a Thunderjet 8, I believe he called it. Mm-hmm. And I've not actually found a Thunderjet 8, but in 1968, there was a Thunderbird Superjet 429. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm kind of wondering if they kind of made that name up just to kind of make fun of the the names that cars were getting, or if it was... You know. What I found was there were two different things that popped up for Thunderjet, British Thunderjet. Oh, uh, uh-huh. But Thunderjet in particular was, one of them was a fighter bomber, a U.S. fighter bomber, which I don't necessarily know, I mean, how oh. prevalent that was. But it seemed like it might have been a play on, uh, there's a kind of car racetrack, they're called slot cars. Uh-huh. And the thing about it, I grew up with them. My cousin and I would play them all the time. And our whole game was just to wreck them off the track. And these are the tracks <laughs> that have like a little metal strip all the way around it. And there's a little groove and your uh-huh. car fits in there. And it's got an electric, you oh, know, everything's okay. attached. Yeah. You can make them go, yeah, in different speeds and stuff. We loved playing it. Loved, you know, the carnage of it all. <laughs> but uh, apparently the most popular brand of this was the Thunder Jets. So oh. I don't know if it was kind of a slight nod to, you know, the whole thing is made up. It's just ridiculous. And uh-huh. I thought I thought it was going to end with maybe he was getting like a slot car and didn't know it. But, <laughs> <laughs> which oh, that it ended funny in its own right. I just assumed that's what it was. But the, it was actually uh, reaching, you know, its height of popularity at the time. So uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know what they were referencing. It could be just they thought it sounded very pretentious and British. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Maybe all of the above. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's fun to hear them talk about the type of car they're looking for. And, um, and there is one side mention where Elliot um, mentions that he has a brother. And I don't remember ever hearing him mention a brother before. So that was kind of interesting and to hear uh, just what his brother does for a living. <laughs> we'll let you discover that yourselves. Don't want to give too much away. And then um, there is a discussion about English cooking. Mm. And whenever I see or read something about English cooking, is usually done in a rather disparaging manner. Um, I guess... In haute cuisine, English cooking is not considered the finest. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know, this episode for some reason brought that to mind. And the recipe book that they use could have been from the medieval times. 
Which might be better than modern day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but it's 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 so entertaining to listen to them try and make this English meal out of this English cookbook that's probably from a bygone era or at least completely fabricated by someone pretending to be English <laughs> from a bygone era. <laughs> but it's it's an enjoyable episode and it's it's one that I, I was having kind of a, a bad day so it was fun to just sit down and listen to this because the Phil Harris and Alice Bay shows they always make me laugh and this one this one made me laugh so it was it was fun okay. to listen to <laughs> well and this one for me I I've immediately fallen in love with the character of Julius or Walter Tetley more specifically yeah. <laughs> who plays Julius <laughs> They use him in such a humorous way here, and his delivery is, it just takes me off guard, the way he'll say things, and even just oh, uh-huh. an accent he'll put on things. Arthur Miller, there's a, he's a, you know, famous dance instructor kind of thing, Oh, uh-huh. and there's he's referencing him in a little rant about this whole preparation they're doing for this British, you know, aristocrat, and he's <laughs> like, he says, Autumn Miller, and I was like, that is the cutest thing ever, like, <laughs> Like everybody should talk like that. It's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, I really like. I think of all the shows we listen to, this he, Julius is probably my favorite character of any of them. <laughs> he does crack me up. I, I think Walter Tetley does. He just in any show I've listened to with him in it, he just does a superb job, and he's just right on the mark with, as you're saying, how he delivers the lines and everything. Mm-hmm. So yes, he. He really helps to make this show what it is, and he's a great contributor to the success of it. And and I read uh, Phil Harris actually in kind of the warm ups before the broadcast. He would have Walter Tetley come out and kind of introduce him as you know the heart and soul of the show, or the, you know the oh. kid that always steals all the <laughs> always steals the spotlight. But he said it in you know in a approving way and uh-huh. kind of both you know acknowledge that he was a big big part of their success right i didn't know that that's awesome so yeah that's really that's really nice to hear it's always for me it's nice to hear when uh, actors or actresses are at, at admire the other people that they're working with you know and they're just mm-hmm. like oh that person's so awesome i was so happy to work with them and <laughs> Versus yeah. <laughs> the second everything goes dead, they're like, die, and they just walk off the screen and just hate each other. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's nice to hear that. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. And it could be a lie, but that's what I read. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you never know, but... It's, it seemed legit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just believe the good. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to choose to believe he's, he would say those things and mean them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so again this was fun and it um it kind of brought back memories to me of when I would was traveling a bit. Um, just being in a foreign country and sometimes wanting food from home, which is kinda of how this English meal comes about, but it's just because I've been in foreign countries and sometimes I've wanted food from home and um, nowadays you can just go to a McDonald's wherever you are and <laughs> you can have food from home. But 
but uh, back then it probably wasn't as easy. It's, and it also might depend on what country you're from, because my understanding is Chinese food in America is not the same thing as Chinese food in China. <laughs> so, no. what's we're that? close is what I've <laughs> experienced. <laughs> so, uh, in some ways, it might be easier as an American traveling abroad to find food that's from home in the sense that if you are a fan of McDonald's or something, and I don't know how I got into the talk of McDonald's, but maybe you're hungry. <laughs> you know what? That could be it. But I, it did bring up a memory when I, my mom, my brother, and my, my father and I, we went, we were, I think, in Italy. And we were discussing uh, where we should go to eat. And one of us, either me, my mom, or my brother, said, let's go to McDonald's. And my dad was just so disgusted with us. <laughs> He's like, and that's why I love your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He was like, we are in Italy and we should be eating Italian food <laughs> it is a, like a sacrilege to come to this country and yes. not eat the local cuisine <laughs> he was a wise man uh, yeah and and i and i can totally see where he's coming from but you know i had been in italy for a while by that time and so <laughs> for me i was just kind of like okay <laughs> which whatever y'all want i can eat another pizza that's fine <laughs> I can eat this amazing food one more day. <laughs> and the food in Italy is amazing. But, you know, every now and then it's, it was kind of nice to drop by McDonald's and say, I want a Big Mac. Right. No, I understand. <laughs> Familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those were some of the thoughts that came up to me as I was listening to the episode. And uh, I always wonder what the listeners think of the episodes after. I should probably go into Potomatic more often and look at the comments on these episodes. <laughs> so listeners, if you if these episodes do bring up thoughts to you, go ahead and write about them in the comments in Potomatic. And, uh, it'd be fun to go back and read and see what memories or thoughts these episodes bring up to, to others. So that was just another random thought. <laughs> my brain's a good one. It's my brain's random today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts on the episode, Mindy, before we turn our listeners over to it? Just, yeah, supporting what you said and leave your comments. And, <laughs> you know, if you also had slot cars that you use solely for the purpose of crashing into each other and launching off the track, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> My cousin and I will be thrilled. If you know where to buy them, if they're still around, <laughs> post that too. That's awesome. <laughs> so, but no, it's a fun, it's a fun one. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, go ahead and listen to this wonderful Phil Harrison Alice Face show and enjoy. Ciao. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television, presents the Phil Harris Alice Face show. Your 
enjoyment here is the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, transcribed, written by Jack Douglas and Marvin Fisher, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, John Hubbard, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, the orchestra under the direction of Skip Martin, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. First, a word from RCA Victor. Announcing the world's most wanted 21-inch television at the lowest price in history. The Master 21 by RCA Victor. 25 million American families helped RCA Victor build the Master 21. From TV owners everywhere, we've gotten the facts on what you want in a television set. First, 21-inch television. Second, table model television. Third, a simple cabinet. Fourth, clear, strong, steady pictures. That's what you said you want, and that's what you get in RCA Victor's new Master 21. 21-inch table model TV with television's finest pictures. You get the chassis with the same powerful picture performance that in test after test, rated higher than sets costing many dollars more. You get the magic monitor, rotomatic tuning, golden throat fidelity sound. The price? As little as $199.95. How can RCA Victor deliver such value at such low cost at so low a price? The answer is found in two words. RCA Victor, know how. RCA Victor Research, the greatest in the industry, joins with RCA Victor Production, also the greatest in the industry, to bring you this low-priced quality receiver that sets a new standard of value. See the new Master 21 at your RCA Victor dealers now, only $199.95. And remember, every year, more people buy RCA Victor than any other television. the stars of the RCA Victor program, Alice Bay and Bill Harris. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, as our show opens today, Phil Harris and his wife, Alice, are driving from their home in Encino toward Hollywood. And although it's a lovely California day, Mr. Harris isn't happy. In fact, the only thing that would make life worth living for him right now would be a new 1954 automobile. Phil, every year at this time you get this uncontrollable yen for a new car. And it's so silly. There's nothing silly about it. I've been driving this car long enough. And it was secondhand when I got it. Runs all right, as far as I can see. Honey, that's because you're not mechanical-minded. This car's beginning to fall to pieces. That's the last time I'm ever going to buy a used car. But the car was guaranteed, wasn't it? Who owned it before you did? Uh, what did the salesman say? He told me the car had been driven only 50,000 miles by a careful San Diego sailor. It's the only car I've ever seen with tattooed sidewalls. It's the truth. I don't mind that, but it's the things he tattooed on there. <laughs> you haven't seen anything till you see Lily St. Cyr do a muscle dance at 30 miles an hour. <laughs> Every cop on the freeway's developing revolving eyeballs. Oh, honey, you'd say just about anything to have an excuse for buying a new car. Wait a minute, it's not that, Alice. These big cars are beginning to look corny. Besides, I'm working in that picture, The High and the Mighty, and everybody in it has a little foreign sports car, like a, like a Jaguar. A Jaguar? Honey, 
Just give me one good reason why you should drive around town in an open sports car. Because I got a velvet beanie for Christmas, and I want to see if the propeller turns. <laughs> Bill? What? What are you stopping here for? Oh, oh, I told Elliot I'd drop by and pick him up. He's having a business conference here. Here? In this shabby neighborhood? Yeah, yeah, this is the place, all right. I'll, I'll be back in a minute, honey. Okay. Oh, there he is over there. Hi, Elliot. Oh, just one minute. I'll be with you just as soon as I made this decision. Gentlemen, I'm compelled to weigh this situation from every angle. If I pursue the one course of action, I run the risk of a sizable financial loss. Whereas, on the other hand, while the safer course is rather promising, I feel that there comes a time in every man's life when he is forced to take a gamble. Gentlemen, I have reached a decision... The 12 ball in the side pocket. <laughs> well, you can't win every time. Here's my quarter. See you later, gentlemen. Come on, Curly. Look, Elliot, why do you waste so much time in a pool? Curly, don't get on me all the time. I have to pick up a buck or two shooting pool. I'm not the executive type like my brother. He amassed a fortune. Legitimately? Sure. He thought of something nobody ever thought of before. He counterfeits special delivery stamps. <laughs> he counterfeits special delivery stamps? Yeah, that's the simplest thing in the world. He takes a three-cent stamp and he paints a bicycle under George Washington. <laughs> Is that the same brother who puts the beer caps on the railroad tracks so he can use them in the telephone? <laughs> Yeah, it's getting so the operator doesn't say number, please. She says, what do you have? <laughs> oh, hello, Alice. Well, finally. That must have been quite a conference. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Did you mind waiting? Oh, no. What girl wouldn't like to sit all alone in a car in such a delightful neighborhood? I've been sitting here watching the sun go down behind the brewery. <laughs> yeah. Ain't that a beautiful brewery? Would you believe it? 14 years ago, there was nothing there but an orange grove. Come on, Elliot, get in the car. Let's get out of yeah, here. Yeah, okay. You drive, huh? Ah, uh, you go down 3rd Street here, Curly, and then you take a left. I know, I know. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something here I don't understand. First of all, Phil talks me into taking a ride. Then he picks you up. I don't get it. Sounds like a plot. No, 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 honey. Believe me, it's no plot. No, oh, no, no. Curly just called me up and he said, Come on, Elliot, I'm going down and buy a new English automobile. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's that new British car, the Thunder Jet 8. Oh, Phil. Now, just a second, Alice. Now, please, now, don't get excited, Alice. I didn't say that I was going to buy it. I just said that we'd look at it, that's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next thing I know, you're bringing it home. Look, Alice. Now, don't make any decisions until you see this British Thunder Jet. Oh, I know you're going to fall in love with it. What a car, Alice. It's got seven speeds forward, four carburetors, three exhaust pipes, and it goes 240 miles an hour. And it's got... Well, why has it got three exhaust pipes? 
Wyatt had got three gone exhaust pipes. <laughs> I said, just like a woman. <laughs> Why has it got three exhaust <laughs> Why has it? Well, anybody knows the... the well, the, the, the first exhaust pipe is to um, um, exhaust the exhaust. Yeah, and the second exhaust pipe? Well, the second exhaust pipe is to exhaust the overflow exhaust from the first exhaust. Couldn't be any simpler. Yeah. Well, what's that third exhaust pipe for? The third exhaust pipe? Yeah. Didn't you hear me say it goes 240 miles an hour? Yeah. It's for sky riding, Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> I can see what I'm up against now. It looks like Heathcliff is going to have a British car or he'll spend the next fortnight pouting in his toddy. Oh, honey, you're a doll. You're the sweetest little wife that ever opened up her checkbook. <laughs> well, what do you know? Hey, look, we're here already. There. There's the British Thunderjet Agency right there. <laughs> Uh, hello, sir. I, um, I came in... Well, I'd, uh, kind of like to take a peek at that, uh, that English... That, that Thunderjet car. I'd, I'd sure like to take a look. Oh, you would, would you? <laughs> My dear man, go away, have your shoes shined, your baggy pants pressed, get your hair cut, then come back and I may let you peek at it through a sterilized window. <laughs> hey, Curly, I think I'll wait in the truck. Wait! <laughs> Look, mister, you don't know who you're talking to. That's true. And I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> Look, mister, I think there's been... Oh, I beg your pardon, madam. I didn't see you there, or I wouldn't have been talking to your chauffeur. <laughs> He ain't no chauffeur, mister. He always wears those leather bow ties because they're smog-resistant. <laughs> oh, look, Ellie, leave it. Look, mister, now you sell British Thunderjet cars, don't you? We deplore the word sell. Each year, the British Thunderjet people export five of them to America. Then, by careful research, we endeavor to find five gentlemen worthy of this exclusive motor vehicle. And now, sir. Can you qualify as a gentleman? <laughs> Gee, Curly, you didn't even get to the semifinals. <laughs> hey, now, wait a minute now. Now, look, mister, my heart is set on owning one of these British Thunder Jets, but, well, if I can't... Well... Hey, look, mister, would it be asking too much if I could... if I could just take one look at it? Well, Lord Cravington will never forgive me, but, uh... Did you say Lord Cravington? Yes, he's the one who selects the future Thunderjet owners. Come on, Curly, I got a wonderful idea. What? Don't stand there. Let's get outside. But I want to see Come the... on, will you? Outside. Right. Outside. 
Look, Elliot, what are you rushing me out here for? Curly, that guy ain't going to help you. The only one that can get you one of these cars is Lord Cravington. And he happens to be staying at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Well, what about it? Here's my plan. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Oh, Elliot, that's wonderful. Sure. Hey, Alice, mm -hmm. Elliot's got a great idea how I can get a British Thunder jet. Oh, fine. I'll be at the house. Just call me when you need the bail money. Life is just a bowl of cherries Don't take it serious Life's too mysterious You work, you slave, you worry so But you can't take your dough when you go, go, go Keep repeating it's the berries The strongest oak must fall the sweet things in life to you were just loans. So how can you lose what you never own? Life is just a bowl of cherries. So live and laugh at it all. I do say it myself, the dinner table looks lovely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I still don't know how Elliot got Lord Crabbington to agree to come to dinner at our house. Psychology, Alice, psychology. Elliot figured the guy's in a strange country and must be dying for some English food. So Elliot promised him a genuine old English meal, a typical British dinner. Pretty smart, huh? Yeah. Alice, you don't realize how hungry these Englishmen get for some real British food. Why, just last week, Sir Cedric Hardwick got so desperate for some British pot roast, he took a bite out of Charles Lawton. <laughs> it was an outside cut, too. Well, I'm going in and get the place cards. See you later, honey. Yeah, hon. Now, let's see if everything looks cultured enough. Box of cigarettes. English ovals, naturally. And that old print I borrowed of the Tower of London. Then, of course, my own coat of arms, which I dug out for the occasion. Yes, sir. I'll bet Lord Cravington has never seen anything like the Harris coat of arms. Just look at that. Two cross bottles rampant on a field of pickled ham hocks. <laughs> My family goes back to the House of Lords. <laughs> Quite often. <laughs> They're 
will always be in England, and England hey, shall be... Hey, Crowley, I'm taking care of everything. Oh. Who are you going to get to furnish that food? Romanoff's British department or what? How are you going to... No, no, no. Why should we lay out loot like that? You see this book? It's a genuine old English cookbook. And look here on page five. Here's what we're going to have. The Royal Hunt Dinner. When Lord Cravington throws a stiff upper lip over this feast, he'll blow his crumpet. <laughs> well, how do you know if this cookbook here's a real McCoy? Well, look at this recipe. How to stuff a Yorkshire pudding and with what? Listen to what it says. <laughs> Uh, it says, uh, take ye old crock. <laughs> put on ye old stove. Add ye old pinch of ye old English herbs. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where'd you get this book? At ye old Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> Elliot, what's the matter? Now, relax, relax. I borrowed it from the library. <laughs> Come on now, Curly. Let's put on our apron. Elliot, how are we going to cook an old English dinner? Where are we going to get the ingredients? There's stuff in this cookbook I never heard of before. I took care of that. When are you going to learn to trust me? I had Julius out since 6 o'clock this morning rounding up the stuff. Now, according to the book, what we need first to mix the sauce is a three-foot-deep hand-wrought pewter cauldron... <laughs> Such as Lady Guinevere presented to Sir Lancelot at the Battle of Wickenham Moors. <laughs> he ain't got nothing like that. Well, then we'll have to use the three-inch deep frying pan that Lady Alice gave to Philip at the Battle of Encino. <laughs> Very funny. Elliot, it's getting late. Now, where's Julius? Are you Will sure? Will you just relax? He's driving in the driveway right well, now. Well, thank goodness. Now, what else do we need in the way of utensils? Well... How are you fixed for flaming swords? Oh, we're long on those. <laughs> i tell you what we will need. You better go down in the basement and get a bottle of uh, chutney. The three-star brand. Okay. Yeah, I'll be back in a minute, Malcolm. Yeah, they'll always be in England. Hey, Julius, about time you got here. About time I got here. I've been running all over town trying to find that weird ingredients you sent me after. Some of that junk ain't been in existence for over 200 years. <laughs> like that Canary Island Spice title tale. <laughs> well, I looked and I looked and I looked. I finally found one. Where? Why does a title usually wear its tail? <laughs> You mean you went to the turtle tank at the zoo? Don't worry, he's still swimming. <laughs> but it's uphill all the way. <laughs> all that trouble just so Mr. Harris can get on the good side of some Englishman. Now, nah, Julius, it'll be worth it. Hey, did you bring the, you know, the main thing, the entree? You mean the boar's head? Yeah. The boar's head. The main course. That was a pretty thing to get. <laughs> I run my little legs off, but here it is. Gee, that's a big one, isn't it? And it's on a wooden platter. Yeah, I snatched it off the wall at the Elks Club. 
Well, just set it on the kitchen table there. Man, this animal must have been ferocious, huh? Look at those whiskers, the big nostrils, those red eyes. Hey, I found it. Ye gods, what happened to Don Wilson? <laughs> Girl, that's a boar's head. A boar's head? What's that for? We're going to cook it. That's what they have to eat in England. That's all they got to eat in England? Yeah. No wonder they're all taking bites off Charles Lawton. <laughs> Elliot, how can you cook this? It's as hard as a rock. Oh, it'll soften up, Mr. Harris. All you have to do is put it in a tub of water and boil it. How long? Oh, it ought to be done along about the 1st of June. <laughs> now, I won't take any time at all, girl. Just pick up Wilbur and drop him in that boiling water. Okay, I'll... Wilbur? Yeah, that's what I named the boar's head. Well, drop it in. What are you waiting for? It's the way he's looking at me. <laughs> he looks like my commanding officer after he talked back to the witch doctor. <laughs> Hello? Hello, this is the smog control chairman. There's a big cloud of smoke over your house. What's going on over there? We're having an Englishman for dinner. Well, stick a fork in him. I think he's done. <laughs> well, let's see now. We've been boiling this boar's head for two hours, and we've put in everything the book says. Got a kind of a peculiar odor. Maybe it needs a little more boiling. Stir it up a little bit, Elliot. You stir it, Curly. You're wearing a space helmet. <laughs> hey, Elliot, I think this thing is done. The broth tastes real good. Let me try it. Tastes a little bit like a sautéed tennis ball. <laughs> That has to be Lord Cravington now. Hurry up, Julius. Get under your English footman's outfit. Don't forget you're serving at dinner. Ah, oh, no, Mr. Lewis. You give me five bucks to do this, but I can't go through with it. Julius, Lord Cravington is here. But look at them clothes Mr. Lewis got me. A white starch, buster brown collar, sateen knee breeches, with silk stockings and patent leather shoes with silver buckles. What am I going to do? Save the dinner or do a tango with Arthur Murray? <laughs> Julius, I'm not going to let you stand between me and that British sports car. Now get into that outfit while I answer the door. <laughs> oh, oh, Lord Callington, that was a very amusing story. Here, have another cup of tea. Uh, thank you, no, Miss Fay. I'm afraid to drink any more tea. It might spoil my appetite. Uh -huh. And I've been so looking forward to a good English home-cooked meal. By the way, do you have a British chef? No, Lord. You see, uh, I, uh, I cooked the whole meal myself. You uh, cooked it, Mr. Harris? Yep. I think I will have another cup of tea. <laughs> Wait a minute, Governor. Don't use a new bag. There's a couple of good sloshes left in mine. <laughs> Oh, uh, Mr. Harris, did I understand you to say that you spent some time in England? 
Oh, to be sure. Quite, quite. Yes, lovely old country, England. What part did you visit? A bit. Oh, oh, yes. Uh, uh, it was someplace up north. Oh, then it must have been around Newcastle on Tyne. No. No, that, that doesn't sound like it. No. Oh, I know. Then it must have been around Shropshire on the dunes. No, this was way beyond that. <laughs> this was a little railroad stop. Um, this was called um, Bristles on the Thigh. <laughs> Bristles on the Thigh? Yeah, it comes right after shaving on the leg. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, jolly good, isn't it, eh? Oh, bristles on the shaving on the left. Yes, yes. Devastatingly funny, old chap. Devastatingly funny. American humor, poor things. <laughs> Nevertheless, I must remember to tell that to Winnie. <laughs> Oh, good. Come on, everyone. Let's all sit down, huh? <laughs> Lord Travington, just wait till you see the special dish we prepared especially in your honor. Julius, you may serve Lord Travington first. Take the cover off. Where did you get a whiff of this, your majesty, ship? There you are, Lord Travington. I'll bet you didn't expect to see anything like that so far from home. Frankly, I didn't. <laughs> How, uh, how did it get here? <laughs> was it, uh, was it washed up on the beach? <laughs> oh, Lord Cravington, see, this is English delicacy. It's boiled boar's head. Oh, well, how do you eat it? No formality, Lord. You just take a bite and pass it. <laughs> That's what them rings in the ears are for. <laughs> Wait a minute, Lord Cravington, where are you going? Lord Cravington! Lord Cravington, you forgot your umbrella. I'll be back in a minute, Alice. Gee, I always thought that Englishmen were polite. He just got up and left. Yeah, he didn't even crazy. <laughs> I did, but he didn't. And after all the trouble you went... Hey, Elliot, Elliot, let me shake your hand. That sure. was the greatest idea you ever had. Lord Cravington is letting me have a British Thunderjet in the morning. We made a deal. Really, Phil? Yeah, having this old English dinner did the trick. But, Curly, he didn't even take a bite. That's the deal. I get the car if he doesn't have to eat the dinner. <laughs> Nineteen forty-six. RCA Victor know-how creates America's first post-war table model TV. Nineteen fifty, and every year since, RCA Victor has put more TV sets into American homes than any other maker. Nineteen fifty-four. RCA Victor combines the industry's greatest research and production facilities to bring you the Master Twenty-One, America's most wanted twenty-one inch television at the lowest price in history. Only one hundred ninety-nine dollars and ninety-five cents. Think of it. RCA Victor 21-inch television for as little as $199.95. Here is television with all the famous RCA Victor TV features. Here is RCA Victor quality, 
at a price everyone can afford. It's at your dealers now. The Master 21 by RCA Victor. First in television. This year, 1954, may be the showdown year in the 16-year fight of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis Against Polio. Give your share to the March of Dimes Fund, for this year's giving may be the giving that wins. Thank you, and good night. Good night, everybody. Included in this program transcribed were Jerry Desmond, Jerry Hausner, and Frank Nelson. The part of Julius was played by Walter Tetley. This has been an NBC Radio Network production. This music's from RCA Victor's on-the-spot recording of Vladimir Horowitz's 25th anniversary concert at Carnegie Hall. Olin Downs, music critic of the New York Times, said of this recital, a great artist at the height of his powers. Listen to RCA Victor's exciting new Horowitz anniversary album at your dealers now. Tomorrow, enjoy a new show, a four-hour road show on the NBC radio network. Hello again, this is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1943-1944 season. Uh, this is going to be kind of a weird podcast. I'm going to do this one, and then there'll be another podcast immediately following this, because I forgot to mention something I wanted to mention, and, I th- and it's a pretty good podcast, so... Uh, if you enjoy my introductions, I think you'll enjoy this one quite a bit. But anyway, this little one I'm going to have right now, I, I forgot to mention that my wife is a big fan of Hawaii Five O, the new Hawaii Five O series. I, I haven't watched it a lot, I've watched it some. But she told me that there was a great episode that I'd like that she showed me this last week. It was last week's episode, I believe. And it was all about Pearl Harbor and... Uh, Japanese internment camps, and it was just a really touching, well-done episode that seemed better than anything I've seen on Hawaii, the new Hawaii Five-0. So if you have Hulu or some way of watching that episode, um, I hope you get a chance to do that or go to C- I don't. I guess, I don't know if CBS shows are on Hulu, so you might have to go to CBS's website or something. Anyway, if you get a chance to watch that episode, I think you'll really enjoy it. It ties in really well to uh, the episodes we're playing of the Jack Benny show from uh, the War Years. And I think um, just it's neat to see a modern show trying to honor the past. And it's even dedicated at the end of The Greatest Generation. And I just thought that was kind of neat. It's probably going to be the last show we'll ever have that's going to feature what's supposed to be current um, veterans of World War II. I mean, because they're all getting so old, um, the folks in this are supposed to be in their late 80s and 90s, um, because, of course, that's how old you'd have to be, if, especially if you were around during the Pearl Harbor attacks and so forth. So, um, But just a really interesting take on that, so... And, uh, get a, if you get a chance to listen to that, uh, watch that show, please do. 
Uh, the other thing I'd mentioned real quick is that uh, we would love to get more donations from folks. Um, the uh, I have to pay this month the, the for the year's worth of um, bandwidth, which costs quite a bit, and actually moved us up a level because we were kind of running out of bandwidth the last couple months. So uh, anybody who could uh, donate some money to the podcast, if you like listening to my podcast and you like my introductions and things, uh, please show me by, by donating a little bit if you can. Every little bit helps. Um, we had uh, someone made the uh, first our, our first uh, Dennis Day donation level of $2. Uh, recently we've had, um, we've had a lot of folks donate that in the past. I just haven't had anyone lately. And just because I got that, I was just like, hey, you know, I'm going to allow him, just because it's so cool that he did that, I'm going to allow him to have access to uh, a lot of my Jack Benny shows and things. So you never know. Sometimes I, even though you're supposed to pay more at the $25 level, you get access to all the Jack Benny podcasts. And at the $39 level, you get access to all of my podcasts uh, that have in Dropbox accounts. Um Sometimes, if you donate a lower level and and I feel like it, I might I might let you have some access as well. So you just never know. Uh, anyway, so if anything that you're willing to donate would be fantastic, whether it's two dollars or whether it's thirty nine dollars or whether it's hundreds of dollars, all of that helps. And uh, to do that, uh, you just you need to get on a PC though, and you go to buckbenny.com, and that'll take you right to. My podcast page over there on the uh, right-hand side, if you scroll down just a little bit, you'll see uh, the different PayPal donation buttons, and you can select the level you want to donate on, or you can click just the buttons by itself, and then you can just say how much you want to donate. Any of that stuff's great. If you want to donate, we had people donate recently with checks. That's fantastic. Just email me uh, at buckbennyotr at gmail.com and uh, ask for my address and I'll give it to you and then you can send me a check, money order, whatever you want. Um, I just thank you all the folks that are helping support the podcast. Uh, I will try now after this week to only ask maybe like just like once a week uh, for donations and things. Uh, I just thank all of you for this this last couple months. It's really been our fundraiser drive and you guys have been great at donating and it's just been fantastic. So Anyway, enjoy this episode, and here comes another podcast that's, that's uh, I think, a pretty good one that you'll enjoy, and then we'll get right into the show. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1943-1944 season. Tonight's episode, uh, we just have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, first off, I want to say um, we're going to start by presenting a little clip from the end of last week's episode, I, I thought it was an amazing episode last week. It was the new tenant skit. It was the first new tenant skit that, of course, the new writing team would take on um, after Beloyna Morrow uh, left the show. And I really think they hit a home run with this. Um, Beloyna Morrow had laid out this great concept of the new tenant skits, but our new writers take it in a whole nother direction and just really um, make a home run with with this with their presentation. Uh, the last part of it actually got me almost a little teary-eyed just thinking about um, 
all the um, folks that had died in Pearl Harbor, and just the way Jack kind of talks about Pearl Harbor and that the as he was relating it to a ball game that the ball game wasn't even started yet when they um, you know took had attacked Pearl Harbor, of course. So I just thought I'd present that for you again. So I'm going to play that here for you now, and then uh, we'll come back and I'll do a little more podcast for you. How's the game going? Well, at the start, things didn't look so good. But after a while... Hear that, son? Yes, sir. What is it? That's being played for some of Sam's nephews. They were darn good ball players and hard hitters, too. But they were put out early in the game. Wasn't their fault. Pitching was a little too fast for them then. And it wasn't fair, either. The man that had my job last year told me that Tojo started pitching before the umpire said, play ball. That ain't baseball, son. Not like they play it in America. Well, I gotta be moseying along now. Oh, by the way, son, Uncle Sam's got a nephew called Franklin that's been taking mighty good care of him. Andy Sam. They're darn too. So keep an eye on him, son. Give him all the help you can. Franklin, eh? I'll write that down. And here's some more names for you. There's Winston, Joe, Chung. whole lot more than Sam will give you. I ain't got time to mention them all right now. I'll make a note of them. Leave it to me. Hmm. One more thing, son. When I came in, there was a name given to me, and I was instructed to pass it on to you. And I want you to pass it on to the next little fella that takes over. Who is it, sir? The name is Colin Kelly. He represents all our boys who only got one turn at bat. Remember that, son. I will. Well, gotta be leaving now. Goodbye, Sam. So long, old timer. Well, here I go. So long, 43. So long, Columbia. Keep them flying. Isn't that applause amazing? 30 full seconds of applause. That's the longest applause I can think of on a Jack Benny show. We always talk about the longest laugh in a Benny show, and the longest laughs are always about 27 seconds, 28, 29. I, I don't think any have gone past 30. And here's 30 seconds of applause. We never talk about the longest applause on a Jack show, but I think this might be it. And they're just so emphatic, it's like they're telling him, yes, you've caught the whole zeitgeist of the whole country. And it's just uh, amazing that uh, they just are so emphatic about the applause. And I love that. That's, that's one of the reasons I love that clip, and I brought it to you again. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. 
if you enjoyed that piece of the new tenant skit and you enjoyed the new tenant skits from last week, you might want to tune into the program I did before this, which uh, is a compilation of all the new tenant skits in order from the first one to the very last one being uh, the one that he did on television in the 1955-56 season. Uh, and it's just uh, fun to hear them all back to back to back to back. I'll, I'm going to start bringing you those every New Year. I'm going to put um, the first hour on New Year's Eve and the second hour on New Year's Day. And I just thought that would be kind of fun. I've always wanted to compile that, so it was fun this year compiling that. And they had good-sounding episodes of almost all the episodes. And then I also had uh, access to um, the television episodes, so it was just a good time to do that. Now... Um, that we covered that. I want to talk about this tonight's episode. Uh, we get a chance to uh, uh, learn about Jack's camel, and th the actor who plays the camel is really unique in that it is um, Stan Freeberg, and the Stan Freeberg will become a hugely famous. Uh, comedian, creator of comedy records, probably the father of all comedy records, and uh, just does wonderful work on the history of the United States, um, part one and, and what, 20-some years later he did part two, and those are fun to listen to. He went into the world of advertising and just did some marvelous adverti humorous advertisements, uh, just a great um, satirist and a great comedian. Um, and so it's fun to hear him be the, be the camel on, uh, this, his only episode actually that he ever appears on of the Jack Benny radio show. So it's just a, a unique thing. I don't know how they decided to get him or, or, or what, or how much of an influence this being on Jack's show and seeing Jack's show was on him having his own show. Um, let's see, uh. A little over a decade later, a decade and a half later, I guess, uh, he would uh, take over the actual uh, Jack Benny's time slot on Sunday nights at 7. His show after Jack's show was over, uh, they had a couple years of Jack Benny reruns that were called The Best of Benny, and then when they took those off the air, then his show replaced them, I think, in 1957, The Stan Freeberg Show, which only ran for about 15 episodes. I presented it for you guys um, a couple summers ago. And anyway, it's just cool to hear Stan Freeberg on this. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny. If any of you have visited a hospital anywhere in America recently, you know there's a serious, a critical shortage of nurses. At least 65,000 new students must enroll this year if we are to care for our fighting forces and our civilians at home. So please think about it. You can do an important war job as a cadet nurse, and you can become one with all expenses paid. The U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps issues scholarships which pay all expenses plus a regular monthly spending allowance. As a cadet nurse, you can help your country right now. And you receive training for a respected and well-paid lifetime career. So if you're from 18 to 35 years of age, 
with a good high school record and good health? Why don't you join the U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps? Apply for complete information at your local hospital or write to the U.S. Cadet Nurse Corps, Box 88, New York City. The Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. things, folks, Wilbur Brown is on a diet. And of all the foolish things I ever heard, why, why it's so silly, I hate to tell you. You know what Wilbur does? He goes on a starvation diet for breakfast. Then, of course, eats like a stuffed owl at lunchtime. Doesn't the poor guy know that breakfast is the stoke-up meal, the most important meal of the day? We've been without any food 10 or 12 hours. That's why dietitians tell us we need at least one quarter of our entire day's nourishment in the morning. And they say we need a whole grain cereal. So make it Grape Nuts Flakes, folks. Delicious? You bet. Crisp, toasty brown, malty rich, and nourishing. Ah, Grape Nuts Flakes are a whole grain cereal, cram full of energy-giving whole grain food values. So friends, don't be a Wilbur. Eat a good breakfast, do a better job. And feature tempting, toasty brown Grape Nuts Flakes, America's most distinctive flake cereal, Grape Nuts Flakes. played by the orchestra. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's turn back the clock a few hours. It's Sunday morning in the Jack Benny household. A Sunday, a Monday, and always. I would be in heaven if I could roll a seven. Sunday, Monday, and always. I'd be so happy it would make my poor heart pound To hear those little cubes go round and round and round and round <laughs> Oh, Rochester, Rochester, whoever told you you could sing? There was only one man who told me I couldn't Well, I'd like to meet him He's dead now <laughs> Well, prop up another pillow behind me so I'll be more comfortable uh, you can bring me my breakfast now. Okay, but this is the silliest thing I ever heard of. There's nothing silly about it. Lots of people have breakfast in bed. I know, boss, but not in the kitchen. <laughs> well, it's warmer down here than it is up in my room. I hope you haven't any objection. No, but it sure was a strain on me carrying your bed downstairs. <laughs> It was a strain on me, too. You almost shook me out of it. <laughs> now, how about some, uh, some orange juice? I'm fixing it for you right now. Let's see. Here's the orange. Now, where's the knife? I got it. Now to give it a good squeeze. What? What? What was that? Juice! <laughs> Juice? 
Yes, sir. These California oranges don't know their own strength. That looks good. Uh, what else? What else should I have, Rochester? How about some breakfast cereal? Yeah. What kind of breakfast cereal have we got? Oh, boss, come now. <laughs> oh, yes, I'll have the flakies this time. <laughs> the flakies? Uh, and uh, would you like some... Uh-oh. Say, boss, here comes your crazy boarder, Mr. Billingsley. Shh, quiet, Rochester. You'll hurt his feelings. Good morning, Mr. Billingsley. Good morning, Mr. Benny. Taking it lying down, I see. <laughs> yes, yes, breakfast in bed is one luxury I always enjoy. You know, I always used to have my bed in the kitchen, too. In fact, I lived in the kitchen. You did? Why? Oh, it was one of those things. I was married to a cockroach. <laughs> To, to a cockroach? Her name was Gwendolyn. We used to argue all the time over who was boss. What was that, Mr. Billingsley? I say we used to argue all the time over who was boss. You and the cockroach? You did? Yes. So one day I put my foot down and that was the end of it. <laughs> hmm. After that, I, I stayed single for a long time. Well, I got tired of being a bachelor, so I remarried. What's that, Rochester? Our trap! It finally caught that mouse! Oh. Well, what do you know? I'm single again. <laughs> One tragedy after another. Would you, uh, would you care for a cup of coffee, Mr. Billingsley? No, thanks. I must be leaving now. I'm going to run over to the barber shop and get a T-bone steak. But you can't get a T-bone steak at the barber shop. I know, but I can't get one at the butcher's either, so I might as well get a haircut while I'm waiting. <laughs> I see. Well, goodbye, Mr. Benny. Goodbye. Now, how did that get by the censor? <laughs> That's what you... You know, Rochester... I I feel like laughing, but he scares me so. I uh, Rochester, I think you're right. He has been acting a little eccentric lately. Well, hand me my robe. I'm going to get up. Okay. Say, boss, you better hurry. We got to pick up your camel at the freight company today. That's right, Rochester. I invited my whole gang over. And remember, don't breathe a word about it. I want the camel to be a big surprise. I'll get it, Rochester. You clean up the dishes. Oh, hello, Mary. Hello, Jack. Well, you told me to come over here. Now, what's the big secret you're going to spring on us? Mary, you'll never guess. It'll be the biggest surprise this town ever had. Don't tell me you were drafted. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly, Mary. I'm over 38. <laughs> what are you laughing at? That's what kept you out of the last war. <laughs> Mary, I'm only a little over 38 now. Go on. You've got a brother that's 50. I know I have. Your twin brother. So what? We had a slow doctor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the idea of my being in the service isn't so ridiculous. Well, you know what Fred Allen said. The biggest laugh you ever got was when you appeared before your draft board. Oh, yeah? Well, all I know is when Allen went to his draft board, they looked at the guy in front of him and said, 4-H... The guy in back of him and said, poor F. 
Then they looked at Alan and said, what for? <laughs> Which, incidentally, is the same thing his father said to the store. So don't tell me about Alan. All right, Jack. Why, that weakling. He, he had to take a local anesthetic to get his elk's tooth clean. <laughs> So don't tell me about Alan. All right, Jack, I won't. He had to go to Charles Atlas for six months to get enough muscles to hiccup. <laughs> so don't tell me about Alan. All right, Jack, all right. And you're lucky I can't think of anything else. Jack, will you please forget about Alan and tell me what the surprise is? Mary, I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to wait here till it comes. Meanwhile, I'm going upstairs and get dressed. Okay, I want to use the phone anyway. I forgot to tell Butterfly what to prepare for dinner. Go ahead, I'll be down in a minute. This is the operator. Number, please. Uh, give me Crestview 52717. Just a minute. Does Mr. Benny know you're using his phone? <laughs> well, of course he knows. Oh, yeah? Well, what's the password? <laughs> password? Well, of all the... Oh, Jack, what's the password? Sulfanilamide. <laughs> hmm, you have to get a prescription to make a phone call here yet. Operator, it's sulfanilamide. Okay, I'll get your number. Hello? Hello, Butterfly. This is Miss Livingston. Oh, hello, Miss Livingston. Gee, I'm awfully glad you called. You are, Butterfly? Why? I was lonesome. <laughs> oh, well, Butterfly, the reason I called is I forgot to tell you what to prepare for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. I'll have dinner at 7 o'clock. So let's have vegetable soup, salad with Thousand Island dressing, lamb chops, and rice pudding. Have you got that down? I haven't even cooked it yet. <laughs> Butterfly, I mean, did you write it down? No, ma'am, but I will. Would you mind telling me again, Miss Livingston? All right. Vegetable soup, salad with Thousand Island dressing, lamb chops, and rice pudding. Now, have you got that written? Not yet, Miss Livingston. I'm having trouble with the spelling. <laughs> oh, uh, what can't you spell? The words. <laughs> Never mind, Butterfly. I'll come home early and help you out. Thank you. By the way, Miss Livingston, when you get home, would you mind coming in the back door? Why? I just swept the living room. <laughs> well, I'll try and be careful. Goodbye. Goodbye. Say, Mary. Mary, I'm going to rush out now and bring back the surprise. So you call down Phil and Dennis and tell them to hurry over. All right. Rochester, get the car out. Okay, boss. Oh, Jack, are you still driving around in that yellow cab of yours? Mary, it doesn't look like a cab anymore. I had it painted a different color. <clears throat> oh. That's right, Miss Livingston. If we didn't stop to pick up passengers, no one would know it's a taxi cab. <laughs> Rochester, stop lying and let's go. Oh, darn it, there's the phone. I'll get it. Hello? Mr. Benny, this is the operator. Yes? What's the password for tomorrow? L-S-M-F-T. <laughs> Goodbye. Come on, Rochester, let's go.
You better hurry, Rochester. I want to get to the freight, off- freight office before it closes. Okay. And when we get the camel, I want you to be nice to her. Boss, I don't want to have anything to do with those wild animals. I'm having enough trouble with your polar bear. Oh, you're always afraid of Carmichael just because he shows his teeth once in a while. For heaven's sake, he's only smiling at you. Smiling at me? Yes. You want to know something, boss? What? Yesterday when I was feeding him, I happened to turn my back and he smiled right through the seat of my pants. <laughs> oh, Rochester, stop exaggerating. Carmichael's just playful. Playful? What happened to the gas man? <laughs> What are you talking about? That was two years ago. Well, we haven't had a gas bill since. (laughs) All right, Rochester, drop it. Anyway, here we are at the freight office. Oh, boy. Won't the gang be surprised when I come home with the camel? I guess we'll have to go over to that other window. Where? Over there, where the man's on the phone. I'm sorry, but we don't make deliveries. You'll have to call for it yourself. Oh, mister. I'll be with you in a minute, sir. No, no, I can't break the rule. You'll have to call for it yourself. Goodbye. <laughs> Can you imagine a guy like that sending a mountain goat all the way from Denver? Uh, a mountain goat, huh? Yeah. <laughs> what a crackpot he must be. Well... But there's nothing. You know what I got waiting here for some nitwit? Uh, what? It... <laughs> it... <laughs> well... Well, what, what is it? If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Oh, yes, he would. <laughs> Rochester. Well, what's waiting here for you, bud? Well. <laughs> well, what is it? <laughs> well. Oh! Well, what about it? They have them for pets in North Africa. <laughs> Now, you have got my camel here, haven't you? You don't think I got these windows open because I love the great outdoors, do you? (laughs) Never mind that. Bring her out. You'll have to go get her yourself, mister. Every time I go near that crazy animal, she spits at me. It's your own fault. Camels only spit at people they don't like. Come on, Rochester. We'll go get her. Oh, there she is, Rochester. There's the camel. Isn't she cute? Oh, you sweet thing. We're going to be pals, aren't we? We're going to... (laughs) 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 (laughs)
Say, I'll bet I know what the surprise is. No, Don, no, 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 Don. No, I don't see why not. Don, please. Well, gee, Mary, why couldn't the surprise be a violin? Maybe a real Stradivarius. Oh, for a minute I thought you were going to say grape nuts flakes. So did I. I didn't. Why, of course not. Now, what kind of a surprise would grape nuts flakes be? There's nothing unusual about people coming home with grape nuts flakes. And why shouldn't they? They're malty, rich, sweet as a nut, and are a whole grain cereal. Mr. Wilson is right. It could be a violin. And not only that, they're a basic seven food. Violins? No, grape nuts flakes. And they're a thrifty buy in the big 12-ounce economy-sized package. That could be a small violin. Yeah, we'll just have to wait till grape nut. I mean, Jackson gets back. Hey, Dennis. While we're waiting, how about giving us a little entertainment? Okay, take a card. I don't mean card trick. Oh, this isn't a trick. This card I want you to take is from my singing teacher. He's looking for more business. Oh, well, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, let's have that song, kid. Easy, easy now, girly. Easy. 
here, here's the car, Rochester. Rochester, open the door. That camel ain't gonna fit in the car. Certainly it will. She can pull in her neck and fold up her leg. <laughs> oh, darn it. She won't get in. She keeps shying away. You should have taken the meter out, boy. She knows it's a taxi cab. <laughs> Don't be silly, Rochester. But put the flag up anyway. Now, let's see. I'll tell you what we'd better do. You drive the car home and I'll ride the camel. Now, give me a boost, will you? Okay. <laughs> steady, steady. <laughs> steady there. there. <laughs> steady, girly. Gee, see, this feels high. Hey, look at the guy on the camel. Holy smoke. Well, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Hey, mister. What? The camels are coming. Ta-da, ta-da, the camels are coming. Oh, shut up. What's the matter with you people? Did you ever see a camel before? Hey, Sonny, stop that. Cut it out. Cut that out, I say. You quit hollering at my boy, mister. Well, make him stop riding his bicycle under us. <laughs> what a bunch of tourists. <laughs> Rochester, start the car and let's get going. Rochester. I beg your pardon, sir. You know me and don't deny it. <laughs> now let's get started. My goodness, look, look, in the middle of the street, a lovely giraffe. Madam, this happens to be a camel. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Rochester, let's get away from this crowd. Come on, girly. Giddy up. Come on. Come on. Steady. Steady. Careful, boss. She ran up. Take it easy, girly. Take it easy. Oh, 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 boss. Hold on. Look out. Look out. I can. I can. Oh. What happened, boss? What happened? I fell off. That's what happened. Rochester. Rochester, the camel's running away. Grab the rope. I did, but it broke. Oh, doggone it. There she goes down the street. Don't worry, boss. There's a red light. She'll have to stop. <laughs> Don't be silly. Well, I better call up the house and tell the gang not to wait. Darn it, and I wanted to surprise them with the camel. Oh, well. Rochester, you try to catch her. I'm going over to that drugstore and phone. Hey, Mary, I can't hang around here any longer. I got to get home before the broadcast and bring Alice my radio script. Oh, does she rehearse it with you? No, she explains it to me. <laughs> well, I can do that, Phil. Hey, that must be Jack with his surprise. Yeah, maybe that's why he's ringing the bell. I'll open the door. Oh, hello. Hello, is Jack Benny here? Well, uh, no. Well, gee, I can't understand it. I'm his girlfriend, Gladys of Visco, and he wanted me to come over to the house for a surprise. Oh, do you hear that, fellas? So you're the surprise. Gee, am I? Say, Mary, maybe they're engaged. Come on in, Gladys. Uh, thank you. Well, 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 so you're the surprise. Oh, Mr. Visco? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis! I'm only trying to be a wolf. <laughs> hey, Mary, it looks like that Jack and his girlfriend got their signals crossed, huh? Yeah, I wonder where... Oh, excuse me, Gladys. I'll be right back. Hello? Hello, Mary. This is Jack. I've got some bad news about my surprise. I know. I've seen her. <laughs> what? Your surprise is here. At my house? You mean she found her way all by herself? Well, what's so wonderful about that? 
Well, I knew she had a tag around her neck, but I didn't know she could read. (laughs) Jack, stop being so funny, and I think it was rude of you not to come with her. Mary, I was bringing her home, but the rope broke and she got away. (laughs) The rope broke? Yes, the last time I saw her, she was running down the street waving her tail at people. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, Mary, look, she must be thirsty by now. Would you mind giving her a drink of water? Of course not. Now, look, you'll find a pail on the back porch. (laughs) Just fill it up with water and set it on the floor in front of her. On the floor? Yes, she'll get down on her knees and drink it. Jack, you know what you're talking about. Of course, she was trained that way (laughs) And Mary, look, she has a special diet So don't give her anything to eat till I get home I don't want anything to happen Because I got a good offer for her from the zoo (laughs) Jack, I think you're nuts Oh, yeah, I know she looks kind of dirty now But when I get home, I'm going to give her a bath (laughs) Jack If she heard you say that, she'd slap your face Slap my face? Mary, what are you talking about? Your girlfriend, Gladys Abisco, she's here Well, what of it? Isn't she your surprise? Of course not, the surprise is my camel Your camel? Yes, you remember, it's the one that I said I was going to... boss, boss! But Jack, I I have to hang up the phone now, Mary, Rochester's calling me What is it, Rochester? I found a camel Good, where'd you find her? In the next booth Well, get her out of there We gotta wait, boss She's put in the call to Egypt And there'll be a three-hour delay on the call Rochester, stop making up such silly things Okay Now tell me, where is she? She's over at the counter having a cherry Coke Well, that's different Let's go get her and go home are sort of contrary. Why, if a law was passed, no more breakfast, everybody would holler for breakfast. But as it is, far, far too many people are skimping the most important meal of the day. And you can't expect to do a man-sized job on a canary bird breakfast. Eat a good breakfast, do a better job, and feature those two leading favorites, grape nuts and grape nuts flakes. If you've enjoyed the distinctive, malty-rich goodness of these two delicious cereals, You know why they're favorites. Because theirs is the luscious flavor of sun-ripened wheat and malted barley, expertly blended. Grape nuts, crisp, crunchy kernels. Grape nuts flakes, delicate, toasty brown flakes. Both bring you a swell-tasting breakfast treat and a big extra plus. The extra plus of all-around whole-grain nourishment. One type of nourishment recommended as a breakfast must by nutrition experts. Yep, they're as good for you as they're grand to eat. 
So feature Grape Nuts and Grape Nuts Flakes on your breakfast table every morning. Well, folks, we'll be with you next Sunday night at the same time, broadcasting from the Marine Air Station at El Toro, California. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 